Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. For nearly a decade, no one knew that Ronald Joseph Dominique was killing boys and men over and over in Southern Louisiana. And most people today still don't know who this dirtbag is. Ronald is both one of the most prolific American serial killers of the past several decades and also one of the most unknown. Dominique confessed to raping and murdering 23 boys and men between the ages of 16 and 46 between 1997 and 2006 across six Louisiana parishes. He was finally arrested on December 1st, 2006, uh, brought in suspected of killing two people, quickly confessed to way more crimes than he was accused of committing, and he earned the designation of being one of the most active serial killers in the country, according to the FBI. While a few of his victims were white, Dominique primarily targeted shorter and thinner black men. He strangled or suffocated his victims after they'd been bound. He targeted people living in poverty and or working as sex workers. His most common tactic was to approach a victim, strike up a conversation. He'd offer them money for sex, either with himself or with an attractive woman he had pics of, his niece in reality. He'd say she was his wife, and then he'd tell them she was waiting back at his camper in Bayou Blue, a rural community in home Louisiana, uh, or waiting wherever he happened to be living in the area at the time, just waiting for him to bring some dude back to have sex with her. It was going to be so hot, but the men would have to agree to be tied up first. He'd say that either the woman was leery of a strange man possibly hurting her, or if they had agreed to have sex with him, uh, that he was a little worried about what could happen, or it was his fantasy to have sex with someone who was tied up. His victims willingly let Ronald bind them. They may have agreed to this because of how completely non-threatening he seemed. Ronald, unlike some of the serial killers we've covered here, apparently did not set off red flags with most people he met. He just didn't appear to be a threat at all. He seemed like a harmless pushover. Person after person familiar with his case, lawyers, investigators, etc., whom I watched in various documentaries over and over, spoke of how completely non-threatening this guy seemed. Still seems. He's described as being 5'5", pretty pudgy at the time of the attack, soft-spoken, laid back, not very smart, not very muscular, uh, referred to by numerous people as either weak-looking 
or even, quote, feeble. Uh, His victims may have thought, what's this sad little guy going to do to me? They may have just felt sorry for him. Some of his victims uh, may have had a gut feeling that something wasn't right about his offer of uh, tying them up for sex, but also they needed the money. So they agreed to go along with it. He'd kill all but two of those who agreed to this crazy deal. Only two ever escaped Dominique's camper alive after being brought back there for sex. Dominique was typically a fast and brutal killer. Uh, After murdering his victims, he would then dump their bodies as quickly as possible. He didn't linger or return to crime scenes like many of the other serial killers we've covered. Although he did take immediate credit for his kills after capture, he made it real easy on investigators once they got him. Uh, He also attempted to shift blame to his victims, saying that they were the ones who tried to rape and rob him. Poor guy just had the misfortune of propositioning person after person who then attacked him. What are the odds? Zero in this case. In almost all the murders he was involved in, forensic evidence would prove him to be a liar. So how did this below average man described again over and over as not being very intelligent, uh, a guy described continuously as being lazy, uh, who didn't have accomplices or special resources or knowledge of any kind that would give him some kind of killing advantage, manage to avoid capture for almost a decade? He even continued to kill after he was placed under surveillance by a dedicated serial killer task force. This week, we'll cover what we know about Ronald Dominique's early life, the specific incident that led him to become a serial killer, and the 23 victims he murdered and dumped in the bayous and sugarcane fields of Louisiana in this true crime, serial killer, bayou strangler, soul sister, imposter, Patty LaBelle. It'll make sense soon enough. How did this guy not get caught so much earlier than he did? Edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome once again to the Cult of the Curious. Uh, less intense episode for me today than last week, which is maybe pretty fucked up since a lot of innocent people die in this episode. Uh, last week, whew. Scope, uh, the duration, the rationalization, the cover-ups, men of God preying on children, that one fucking tore me up. Ultimate wolves in sheep's clothing, special kind of evil. Uh, Able to take more of a gallows humor approach to this one today. Maybe this one was easier on me because this guy is now off the streets. Like, he's done. He's getting his fragile butthole tore up like he deserves. That reference will make sense later, just like the Patti LaBelle reference to uh, Will. Uh, He's not preying on anyone anymore. He was a a one-man band, and the band broke up. Last week, uh, sadly, that shit, I'm sure, is still ongoing. The wound's still very much open. New wounds being added, and it's uh, worldwide. That was last week. Uh, This week, it's a new show being recorded here in the Suck Dungeon in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. It's a beautiful sunny day, and I'm excited to uh, shit on the life of uh, this week's rapist and killer. Excuse me, I'm Dan Cummins, a master sucker, altar boy advocate, wannabe pedo priest executioner. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M, who may uh, organically swing through today. A uh, couple tour dates I want to hit again. Very excited about the, the tour that uh, not going on as I record this, going on as you, as you will hear it. Uh, Miami and Palm Beach this week. Boston, Grand Rapids, Austin, Louisville, Portland, Minneapolis coming up the rest of 2022 and then in 2023. Tickets now on sale for the Burn It All Down stand-up tour. 16 cities, all theater shows. I've been trying to break into theaters my entire stand-up career. Done a few one-offs and loved them. This is my first theater run. So really hope you go to dancummins.tv and grab tickets. 
so I can uh, make this successful. Keep it going. There's going to be VIP meet and greets at each show. As far as I know, uh, that is certainly the plan. And uh, I'm going to be heading all over the place. Spokane at the Bing Crosby, Boise at the Egyptian, Kansas City Uptown Theater, the Pageant in St. Louis, Crest Theater in Sacramento, Paramount in Denver, Empire in San Antonio, uh, the Majestic in Dallas, Vogue in Vancouver, BC, finally getting back to Canada, the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Flagstar Strand Theater in Pontiac, just outside Detroit, the Egyptian Room at Old National in Indianapolis, the Civic Theater in New Orleans, finally getting down to NOLA. Uh, the Fillmore in Philadelphia, the Agora in Cleveland, and the Joanne Davidson Theater in Columbus. Uh, so yeah, so fucking pumped. So check those out. DanCummins.tv is where you can link to all the tickets. Uh, finally for today, new shirt. Love this one. Going back to a simple text-based tee this week. Super fun colors and layout. Nice, simple, muted neon design. Uh, got a fun new tagline for Bad Magic Productions. We've been sitting on for a while on it. Often dark, always interesting. A concise statement on the crazy fun world you have all helped build here at Bad Magic. So head on over to badmagicmerch.com and check that shit out. And now it's story time, you beautiful motherfuckers. True crime story time. We're going to get so weird today. Uh, first going to lay out today the, uh, the role poverty played in Dominique's murders. Poverty increases the odds that you will engage in risky behavior. Of course it does. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do to survive. And sometimes sadly doing that can lead you directly to your demise when a predator like Ronald Dominique is preying on the poor. Uh, then since today's episode, uh, again, sits in Cajun country, two out of the last three uh, episodes, I believe, uh, we'll learn a little bit about how uh, parts of Louisiana ended up being uh, Cajun country and what being Cajun means. Then after spending a little bit of time mentioning Hurricane Katrina and why Ronald might not be as well known as uh, comparable recent killers, we'll dive into our timeline that starts with Ronald's birth and ends during the present. Let us begin. Yeah. <laughs> It's Bayou time. Uh, Poverty plays an important theme in today's episode. Uh, Today's story soaked in backwoods Bayou, Louisiana poverty. So let us familiarize ourselves with the backdrop for all these murders, uh, the place, people, culture that provide the setting for our story. Ronald himself lived in poverty for the entirety of his free life, and his victims lived in poverty for the entirety of their lives as well. Typically, his victims uh, were not uh, even doing as well as he was. And he was, most of the time during his killing spree, not exactly killing it financially. He was living in a small trailer, sometimes called a camper, sat in his sister's yard for a good chunk of that time. Uh, If you're looking to target impoverished people in America, Louisiana is unfortunately one of the top states to do just that. Louisiana has consistently ranked as one of the most impoverished states in the nation, been holding down the two spot for a couple years in a row. According to Forbes.com, data in 2021, Louisiana ranked right behind Mississippi, again, for the unfortunate distinction of being America's uh, most impoverished state, with 19.2% of the population living at or below the poverty line, damn near one in five. Mississippi ranked number one with 20.3% of the population living at or below that line. Uh, To illustrate how much poverty can vary state to state, the least impoverished state in 2021 was New Hampshire. Only 7.6% of the population live in at or below that poverty line. The Census Bureau recorded Louisiana's population in 2020 to be 4,657,757,000,000 people. Uh, I think I said that number weird, but you you got what it was. (laughs) Applying that 19.2% poverty rate to the overall population, just under 900,000 people in Louisiana are impoverished, or at least were as of a few years ago. I doubt it's really gotten better recently, uh, considering how the economy has not exactly been soaring here. 
in the states in recent years. Uh, also, wasn't any better uh, back during the era our story today is set in. Poverty is definitely not new to Louisiana. Uh, rate has hovered around 20% for over two decades to back before Dominique started killing. And just how badly are you hurting financially when you are living at or below that poverty line? Uh, you're hurting real, real bad. Here's how the U.S. government defined poverty just last year in 2021 as far as income thresholds go. For a household of one person, anyone making $12,880 or less was impoverished. So if you work 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year, but only made a tick over $6.19 an hour, you'd make that $12,880 a year. For a household of two, it's a combined income of $17,420 or that or less equal poverty. For a household of three, it's a combined income of $21,960. For four, it's $26,500 or less. It's fucking nuts. That really rips the hair off the old chicken skin duffel bag, you know? The average rent for a three-bedroom apartment in Coeur d'Alene right now is $1,600, right? $1,600 a month, $19,200 a year. After you paid rent for a family of four on that $26,500, you'd have $7,320 left over for the year for transportation costs, utilities, clothes, hospital bills, school equipment, fucking food, any sort of entertainment for a family of four. Jumping way up to eight for two parents and six kids, making $44,660 or less means you're living in poverty. Holy shit. Not sure how the fuck anyone is feeding themselves and six kids for less than $45,000 a year. (laughs) Unless they're living like in a free campground, only eating ramen noodles, whatever nuts and berries they're able to forage for in the woods. I mean, mad respect to any parents able to feed and clothe and provide shelter for that many people on that amount of money. It cannot be easy. It is not easy. It is desperate times. And desperate times, as the saying goes, calls for desperate measures. And for over 20 guys, those desperate measures included letting Ronald Dominique time up very likely to make some extra cash for some sex work, which then led to their brutal deaths. Ronald Dominique would murder victims in six different Louisiana parishes full of poverty, Assumption, Iberville, Jefferson, Lafouche, St. Charles, and Terrebonne. In 2020, 15.8% of Assumption residents lived in poverty, as did 23.7% of Iberville's residents, 16.1% of those living in Jefferson Parish, 14.5% of Lafouche Paris residents, uh, 11.3% of St. Charles residents, and uh, that parish doing the best. And finally, 15.7% of Terrebonne Parish uh, residents. To compare those numbers with the national average, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 11.4% of the U.S. lived in poverty in 2020, approximately 37.2 million people. All those parishes I just mentioned, except the residents of St. Charles, uh, doing worse, some quite a bit worse than the national average. And Dominique primarily targeted uh, black men in Louisiana and way more black than white people in Louisiana have been struggling with hard, impoverished times. Way more black residents in Louisiana have been struggling uh, with poverty than members of any other race. Statewide, based on now uh, 2018 census data was the presentation I could find, the best one. Uh, black residents with a poverty rate of 33.1%, much more likely than Hispanics at 25.1%, Asian Americans at 159 Native Americans, high, 247 uh, whites, 12.5%, uh, living at, uh, at or below that poverty line. Even more troubling, based on 2019 census data, over 8% of Louisiana residents in both 2018 and 2019 living in deep poverty. Those living in deep poverty make 50% or less than those living at the poverty line. And that's fucking bonkers. A family of four living in deep poverty in 2019 made $12,875 or less for the year. 
making that kind of money. You couldn't literally afford to live around here unless you somehow owned your property outright or someone let you stay at their place for free. If you owned the property, it'd have to be worth almost nothing so you wouldn't get killed in property taxes. I mean, you can't really afford to live anywhere on that amount. But 8%, almost one in 10 of people in Louisiana, most of them uh, African-Americans somehow pulling it off with the help of uh, welfare programs, cash under the table, odd jobs, sometimes stealing or selling whatever they can just to fucking survive. In 2019, more than 13% of black residents in Louisiana living in deep poverty. Real fucking desperate times with deep poverty. A lot of real desperate choices being made. Getting an extra 50 or 100 bucks for, uh, you know, fucking some harmless seeming dorky white guy being fucked uh, by the same guy or fucking his lady. That money might not mean uh, a lot to uh, uh, many people, but that could drastically change the economic outlook for the whole week or month for someone living in deep poverty when you might not even pull in a thousand bucks a month. Thibodeau, the city Ronald grew up in, about an hour's drive west of uh, Louisiana, uh, west of, excuse me, New Orleans, uh, surrounded by swamp, also full of poverty. Uh, Almost one in four people there out of a population of 15,237 per 2021 estimates living at or below that poverty line. Over one in three residents black. And a lot of them really struggling. Almost 43%, over four out of 10 living there in poverty. Holy shit. Some of those four out of 10, the ones struggling the most, uh, they were the kind of people that this son of a bitch uh, we're going to talk about today hunted. In Homa, the city Ronald mainly lived in as an adult where he killed several victims, a city of 33,000, just tick over per 2021 estimates. Located south of Thibodeau, uh, also just about an hour's drive from NOLA, almost four out of 10 of their black residents live in poverty or deep poverty. And almost one in four of the people that live there are black. A lot of potential victims. Uh, Homa, where Ronald lived during his murder spree, kind of, uh, he mainly lived just outside of Homa in the largest, uh, Homa's the largest city and seat of Terrebonne Parish, uh, Homa absorbed by Terrebonne Parish in 1984, town formed way back in 1832, incorporated in 1848, area mostly used for sugarcane production before the Civil War. The uh, city is uh, named after the United Homa Nation, the indigenous people that originally lived in the area. Many still live there in the area, approximately 17,000 tribal members still living in southern Louisiana. Uh, Homa colonized by the French and Spanish, and then in the 18th century, a bunch of Acadians settled there, and the Acadians would become the Cajuns. Uh, sources do not say that Ronald is Cajun, but he sure looks fucking Cajun. He's got a last name that could be Cajun. He talks like he's Cajun. His face uh, looks, uh, well, pretty Cajun. Uh, a little bit more about Cajuns, since they've come up twice now in three weeks. And uh, let's let's set this uh, little bit of description to some traditional Cajun music to make it uh, just a wee bit more interesting. <laughs> uh, the Cajun, the Cajun story again in France. Uh, people who become the Cajuns uh, came primarily from the rural areas of the Vendy region. Uh, around, uh, <laughs> that's fucking terrible. No, that's not Cajun music. <laughs> it cracks me up if it was, though. I wish that was Cajun music. Uh, that's not, uh, in my, to my ears, uh, incredibly far off of that. Uh, here's some real Cajun music, and they'll continue. 1604. These, uh, these, these uh, Acadians, these people from... Uh, Probably hard to understand what I was saying earlier. The rural areas of the Vendee region of Western France, uh, they began to settle in uh, Acadie, now Nova Scotia, where they prospered as farmers and fishers. Over the next century, the ownership of the colony of Acadie changed hands several times, and this did not bode well for them. In 1713, Great Britain acquired permanent control of Acadie, and many Acadians did not like the British. And they were like, Fuck you got! Fuck you got! Yo, tell me what you do! Something like that. And they became uh, cooperative British subjects. Uh, uncooperative, excuse me. 
uh, preferring to maintain their independence and refusing to swear allegiance to the British crown and church. Finally, in 1755, the British were like, you know what? Fuck you, French hillbillies. And they began the removal of the Acadians from their homeland. These so-called outlaws were taken into custody by British soldiers, herded onto British ships, setting sail for destinations unknown to dump off these exiles. Acadians were dispersed back to France, also to the Caribbean. Some ended up in Britain. More ended up in British colonies along North America's east coast. Many of the exiles along the uh, east coast, in particular, unhappy in their new homes, and they moved on. And a lot of them found their way to South Louisiana and began settling in the rural areas west of New Orleans. By the early 1800s, nearly 4,000 Acadians had arrived and settled in Louisiana. Many lived in Louisiana's bayou country where they hunted, fished, trapped, and lived off the bounty of the Mississippi River Delta. Some moved on to southwest Louisiana's prairies to raise cattle and rice, but most made the swamp their home. These fucking swamp folk, they learned new skills, shared what they brought with them, the many people living in the area already, local tribes, free people of color, enslaved Africans and their descendants, and immigrants from Europe, Asia, North and South America. The Acadians became known as Cajuns, and they adapted to their new home and its people. The French of noble ancestry would say uh, Les Acadians, while some referred to the Acadians as Lacadians, uh, dropping the A. Later came the Americans who could not fucking pronounce Acadians or Acadian. For sure, my mushmouth ancestors. So uh, it became Cajun. Cajun, easier to say than Acadian. These French swamp folk Cajuns, isolated from the rest of the world now for generations for the most part. Their dialect changed over time as did their architecture, music, and food. Uh, glad that fails back. The Acadians of Louisiana today are renowned for their music, their, their food, a real distinct way of talking that at its thickest, to me, is borderline unintelligible. And their ability to hold on to tradition while making the most of the present. Their music, you're hearing their music. Uh, I do like it. I, I was joking earlier, but I, I do like it. Uh, in recent years, Cajuns have actually become some of the world's best air banjo players. Check out a few Cajun licks. I picked up taking a new Cajun course from the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy. For that. I'm sure that made all of you very happy and didn't scare any of your dogs. Anyway, these Cajuns, uh, they've recently also become, uh, unfortunately for some, uh, possessors of uh, very distinct facial features. For starters, their eyes are uh, very close together, no more than a half inch apart. No one's sure how that kind of uh, ended up that way. But one of the ways you can spot a Cajun is if you can tell that their eyes are just, you know, just so fucking close together and beady as all get out. And uh, those two beady, very close together eyes will sit on each side of a big old hooked bird beak type nose. And that's fucking Cajun. That's Cajun's fuck. Interesting fact, the, uh, the poor Cajuns with their Cajun eyes have zero peripheral vision. They're the only humans with no peripheral vision. If someone says they saw something out of the corner of their eye and they're telling the truth, you can be certain that they're not Cajun. Cajun's eyes don't have corners. They're perfectly round, small, round, very beady. Look kind of like doll eyes. Not going to see a lot going on behind them. Very vacant. Vacant, beady, too close together, not attractive. <laughs> Everyone knows I'm kidding now, right? How far did I have to take that before you realized I was kidding? I hope you know I was kidding. Also kind of hope that one Cajun listener got fucking so pissed and just shut the podcast off right before I said I was kidding. Just never listens again. Just, hold up, you know, yank. Hold up, big old yank. I don't try to test him. Can't even try for I don't need to have it, have it. Or something, whatever Cajun sounds like. Uh, anyway, Cajun culture is especially strong in Homa. 
because they were isolated from the rest of the state until the 1930s due to vast swampland surrounding the town. Homer residents have traditionally relied on fishing, oystering, crabbing, shrimping, trapping, the oil industry, and shipbuilding for employment. Very blue collar, in addition to being very Cajun. Uh, home is composed of and surrounded by different bayou communities. Ronald Dominique lived in a very small community. I mean, well, it's spread out. There's a decent amount of people living there, just a mile or so north of Homa uh, called Bayou Blue. Bayou Blue, big rural unincorporated area. There's actually over seven, uh, over 13,000 people scattered around in it. Uh, to describe the culture of this specific community, one resident said that in Bayou uh, in the Bayou Blue documentary, an important source for this episode, that focuses on Ronald Dominique's killings. Because we are on the Gulf Coast and because we have had so much trauma, you know, with hurricanes and the oil spill, there is a sense of we're in this together uh, between us. And there is also a sense of us against the world. According to these residents, Bayou Blue used to be a rural, safe, close-knit community, but then drug use, shootings, robberies became more and more common. Then Ronald showed up and brought a whole hell of a lot more killing to the area than they had previously experienced, at least in recent years. Uh, Finally, almost to the uh, last piece of pre-timeline setup now. What allowed Ronald to keep killing the last year or so of his spree was also a hurricane. Louisiana residents, particularly those down towards the coasts, you know, the Gulf Coast, they have, uh, they have to deal with a lot more natural disasters than most of the rest of us. Nearly every hurricane season, people lose homes, loved ones, workplaces, and ways of life. And the biggest hurricane in recent years was Hurricane Katrina. Katrina was the most significant storm to hit the state since Hurricane Camille in 1969, one of the deadliest natural disasters in U.S. history. In total, as we went over just a uh, few weeks ago in the Gypsy Rose suck, 1,836 people died. 135 people went missing. Louisiana had the most deaths up to uh, 1,170. Large swaths of uh, Terrebonne Parish, parts of Homa, destroyed by the hurricane, signs, trees, roofs, roofs, uh, utility poles, more were damaged by the hurricane. Terrebonne didn't see as uh, much damage as uh, many other parts of the state, but still enough chaos going around to really disrupt the uh, investigation into finding the serial killer that would be Ronald Dominique. Uh, an investigation that already was suffering from a lack of proper funding because of, again, you know, an impoverished area. Uh, now, the last thing to address before the timeline, why isn't this guy more well-known? Uh, compared with many other serial killers, there's been a real lack of reporting on Ronald, Dominique, and his victims. Although there is a well-produced documentary, Bayou Blue, uh, and a book by author Fred Rosen, recently published. The combination of him being uh, apprehended in the wake of Katrina, much bigger national story. Uh, also him targeting men, Black men, sometimes gay black men, instead of attractive, uh, say, mostly white women, like a few other Louisiana serial killers active at the time who were arrested a few years before him contributed to his lack of notoriety. Uh, Derek Todd Lee, Sean Vincent Gillis, uh, they were in the area killing uh, just before he was and at the same time he was for for a stretch. Um, I don't remember hearing about him. Uh, Derek Todd Lee killed at least uh, seven women between 1992 and 2003. I've heard of him. Uh, Sean Gillis killed eight women between 1994, 2004. Uh, Briefly heard of him. Despite a lack of national coverage, uh, Homer residents, many other residents in Southern Louisiana, they sure as shit uh, were very concerned about Ronald Dominique's serial killing. Uh, Another reason uh, why uh, I think Ronald Dominique's case isn't as well-known nationally as uh, many other comparable killers, comparable killers, is because he never went to trial, right? He took a plea bargain, so he didn't get as much media exposure. And then the last reason this guy didn't gain a lot of notoriety, and this is pure speculation, but I for sure believe it, he looks like a fucking dork. <laughs> uh, he has no personality, and he's about as scary seeming as a golden retriever. Seriously. He has a very timid demeanor. He is not clever. His voice, uh, you know, kind of gentle and meek. He looks like someone you'd be more apt to worry about falling victim to a serial killer than uh, than. He looks like a serial killer. 
Like I watched a few docs on this guy and they were in some ways unintentionally so funny with how they described him. The, the commentators, just fucking brutal. The narrator, I've never heard more criminal experts so consistently describe a serial killer as basically a complete dud of a human being. He's referred to in interviews with several people connected to his case as the last guy you would suspect of being a serial killer. Uh, words they use to describe him, uh, weak, unassuming, feeble. You don't hear many men under the age of about 90 being described as feeble. Uh, his attorney, Richard Gorley. Yes, time suckers. We have uh, ourselves yet another fucking dick in this suck. Uh, he said, I don't want to say he had no redeeming qualities, but nothing about him really stood out. He goes on along with a few other people to say that Ronald was, uh, is uh, short, five foot five, unattractive, obese, dumb. I, I, it's crazy the adjectives that get thrown, thrown around at this guy. Uh, no ambition, bald, boring, no friends. No one respects him. <laughs> always complained a lot apparently about everything from his living situation to a lack of friends to like the food he'd be served at the bar restaurant etc and on and on so many people talk about how just a uh, fucking weak he looked like genuinely shocked this dude was able to attack and overpower anyone in any kind of circumstances or even like move a body one investigator in particular genuinely amazed that he was strong enough to somehow move a body uh, a few people talk about how he just never held any kind of real promising job Mentioned how he was uh, fired from, you know, the various menial jobs he did hold briefly, oftentimes. Almost no one assigns any positive qualities at all to this motherfucker. He wasn't, you know, he didn't have to compartmentalize the way some serial killers do because he didn't really have much of a life outside of what he became notorious for. No one says he was uh, funny or generous or helpful or clean, organized, uh, fucking dressed well, good listener. Uh, Didn't fart all the time. uh, Knew how to tie his shoes real good. Uh, Nothing other than, I think, uh, friendly. A few people he had minor interactions uh, with did say he seemed friendly. That's about as good as it got. It's like he really didn't uh, have almost any redeeming qualities. I love it. Not the big, bad, scary monster mainstream media often needs to sell stories like this. I'm going to have fun making fun of this Weasley little turd. I wonder if any of his uh, negative disparaging coverage has made it back to him. He's 58, been in prison since 2006. If he wasn't such a piece of shit, I would feel sorry for him. Uh, I'd feel bad about how many people talk about how basically he's just a huge loser. But again, he lost, uh, I think, any sympathy that anybody should give him when he killed a bunch of people. Uh, the narrator of a doc on this guy, Making a Serial Killer, season one, episode 10. It's a little doc episode. Ronald Dominique, uh, yeah, is the name of the episode, literally says, the narrator says at one point, could this small, feeble drag queen now in custody really be the man cops we're looking for? Jesus Christ. Logan and I were joking while I was doing research here in the office about him uh, just getting pissed about being one of the most prolific serial killers in American history, but still no one is scared of him. You know, no one has any kind of like dark respect for him. He just gets laughed off. I picture him just watching a, you know, a doc on himself in his cell, just getting shredded. He's, oh, come on, God. Oh, fucking shit. I'm a killer. Come on, I'm a bad guy. Man, it's some bullshit. I'm very scary. And then like his cellmate in this imaginary scenario of mine, this guy just slaps him aside the back of the head. Just shut the fuck up, Ronnie. I'm trying to watch a program about you killing a lot of people, you pudgy little dipshit. Interrupted again, you pathetic excuse for a serial killer. I will hold your head in the toilet and shit on your face like I did last week, you fucking loser. Fuck you gonna do about it? Nothing, bitch. How'd you kill anyone anyways? Pisses me off. My grandma could turn you into her bottom bunk, bitch, you dumb candy-ass dork. Apparently the only thing that made Ronald interesting back when he was uh, free, only thing he really got excited about before he got arrested uh, was Patti LaBelle. Yes, that Patty LaBelle, the American soul singing pioneer and Grammy winner, the lady who sang Lady Marmalade. I love details like this when we find them in stories. Ronald would often dress up as Patty and perform at drag shows. And apparently he was awful. 
like atrocious. Like he tried really hard, but could not pull it off, not even close. And he was socially shunned by one group of uh, drag you know, queens after another. Like, like people who watched him perform said he was absolutely terrible. He was not welcomed by various Southern Louisiana gay bar communities, which are typically apparently extremely welcoming, extremely tolerant, but they didn't want him. No one wanted to hang out with this dude. And again, because of how murderous he was, I don't feel sorry for him. Okay, now let's get to covering and ruthlessly mocking this murderous dork in today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to Meat Sacks. And thanks to every company who has sponsored this show. Uh, I've been lucky enough to do for almost six years now. What a ride. Hail Nimrod and let's fucking go. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. January 19th, 1964. Ronald Joseph Dominique is born in Thibodeau, Louisiana. Sources differ on the number of siblings he has. Uh, Author Fred Rosen wrote in his book that Dominique has six siblings, but doesn't name any of them outside of an older sister named Lainey. He'll uh, he'll live on Lainey's property in uh, Homa, while he's actively murdering men around southern Louisiana later in the timeline. Uh, Dominique's Wikipedia page says his parents were poor laborers, but uh, there's no link to a source to verify that information. Wikipedia also reports that Dominique's uh, family lived in a trailer park on the outskirts of Thibodeau uh, for a good chunk of his of his uh, murder spree. Other sources don't elaborate on this uh, living situation. On the Find a Grave website, use it often to get family names for uh, true crime subjects. The initial researcher on this episode, our Olivia Lee, found two people who passed away in Thibodeau who uh, we think are likely his parents. Ronald J. Dominique, or excuse me, uh, Roland J. Dominique was born in September of 1932, died in April of 1999 at 66 years old. Roland had a son named Robert Paul Dominique, who died in May of 2015. Uh, Robert Paul listed as a resident of Bayou Blue, so maybe uh, Ronald's brother. Roland uh, had a wife named Pamela, Ronnie's mom perhaps. Seems like she still might be alive. Uh, no siblings outside of Robert Paul if Roland uh, is Ronald's dad listed in this particular source. What if none of his family members want to be associated with him? Uh, not because he was a, a serial killer, uh, but because he was an embarrassing, unlikable dipshit. <laughs> you know, just, uh, am I Ronald's uh, sister? What? The guy who asked me to loan him some money so he could get in on a sale of JCPenney's? He been waiting on for months? The guy who got fired for working at Dollar Tree for showing up late because he had gotten a really bad tummy ache for eating too many Mike Ikes. The guy who got hurt at the YMCA when he tried bench pressing just a bar with no weight, had to get stuck on his neck, had to have a couple of kids leave it off on his feet last for a choke. No, I'm not related to that dog. <laughs> I would love it. Uh, Ronald Dominic, let's call him Ronnie. He comes across more like a Ronnie than, than a Ronald to me. He grew up in Thibodeau. 
Lafourche Parish between uh, New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Uh, Thibodeau described it as a small town where everyone knows everyone's business. Random trivia. The Chevy Chase classic 1985 film Fletch Lives. Sequel to Fletch set in a fictionalized version of Thibodeau. Also, the 2022 official video for the Arcade Fire song, The Lightning 1-2, shot in Thibodeau. That's a fucking great song. Beautiful video. A uh, fair amount of professional athletes, mostly NFL linemen, some basketball players have come out of Thibodeau. Uh, rock and roll legend Eddie Jones, a.k.a. Guitar Slim, died back in 1959 at the age of 32. He's buried in Thibodeau. Uh, big influence on Jimi Hendrix. Now for some bad trivia. Real bad. Uh, the town was also the site of the infamous uh, Thibodeau Massacre back in 1887. African-American sugarcane plantation workers went on strike to protest inhumane working conditions. And in return, 35 to 50 of them got murdered. Uh, many others almost uh, beaten to death. Those who didn't die went back to work and there were no more strikes for decades. The white mob that broke the strike, they would kill more local black residents than today's serial killer. Uh, refocus on Ronnie now, growing up in a town often referred to as being a bit sleepy. Uh, in uh, Welcome to Thibodeau videos I've watched, uh, where you can avoid the hustle and bustle of big cities and slow down and live on Thibodeau time. Uh, Ronnie was bullied for being short, overweight, and later gay. Uh, since his middle name is Joseph, let's call him Ronnie Joe. Yeah, that's the one. That's perfect. He seems more like a Ronnie Joe to me than a, than a Ronald or a Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie Joe participated in Glee Club and Chorus at Thibodeau High School. And for some reason, this did not skyrocket him to popularity. I can see that. You know, years before the show Glee, in most parts of the country, Glee Club, uh, very much a uh, uh, shortcut towards being bullied. Ronnie Joe claimed to grown up. He was molested by a priest as a child. Uh, his parents did not believe him. I wouldn't doubt it, though, actually. Uh, Thibodeau, like the rest of Louisiana's Cajun area, is very Catholic. And like we learned last week, the church certainly had no fucking problem moving pedo priests to various uh, Louisiana locations. They definitely did that when Ronnie Joe was growing up. How fucking odd and coincidental if he was molested by one of the guys who pissed me off so much last week, like Father Gilbert Gauch. Sorry, I referred to him as Gauth a few times last week, by the way. Just a letter off when I mentioned him a couple times. Uh, Father Gauch was, was preaching in Cajun country, bouncing around in the, in the 1970s when Ronnie Joe was a kid, uh, molesting just about any boy who came across his path. And I'm sure he wasn't the only priest doing that. What if some priest sent him down the path of becoming a serial killer? I wonder how many serial killers were first introduced to, to sexual abuse, to pain by a priest. Ugh. Ronnie Joe also bullied by his own family, uh, according to him at least. In a, in a post-arrest interview, he said of his older sister, she's the only one in the family who treated me nice. Everyone else treated me like crap because I'm gay. If true, that does fucking suck. Uh, detectives used this interview to get to know him. He said his family, nephews, and friends called him names. Uh, as an adult, he tried to get married and his family teased him because the marriage didn't work. Uh, this just comes up in this one thing. There's never a mention of a substantial relationship in any, any source, but he says this one time. Uh, he says, I couldn't bring nobody home because I was scared to tell him, uh, what are you doing with a queer? Uh, he also said his family knew he was gay before he was 20. And again, if true, that's awful. I say if because he will play the victim in ways proven not to be true after his arrest. Trying to paint uh, all the people, uh, at least initially, he killed his people who were trying to hurt him. Hard to know what happened in real life as opposed to what happened just in his head. Uh, but again, yeah, if true, what a bunch of ignorant pieces of shit his family members are. Mocking your old, own child's sexuality. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Cold outside world being inevitably cruel to your child. Is, uh, is that not enough? Need to add to their torment? That's why people who abuse their children are just especially uh, fucking hated to me. You know, it's like the world is going to fucking slap around enough. You got to add to it. Uh, nice work, mom and pop. 
Now, how about you two cunts go lay down in a burning ditch? Uh, despite the possibility of this being true, uh, I am still going to make fun of him. Because again, Ronnie Joe lost the right to sympathy, for me at least, when he chose to rape and take the lives of 23 meat sacks. Uh, Ronnie Joe later told Judge Randall Bethencourt that he graduated from Thibodeau High in 1983 when he was 19. He said he may, uh, may have been held uh, back a year at some point, just based on his age there. And he then studied computer keyboards at Thibodeau Votech, now known as Fletcher Technical Community College. Not sure how you only study keyboards, but that's what he said, apparently. I doubt that's what he did. Probably just an odd wording in the source. But God, I hope that's what he did. That's very funny to me. I picture him being the uh, most useless computer repairman of all time. <laughs> just, uh, hi, this is Ronnie. Uh, how can I be a service uh, for you? How can a computer say, uh, how can I help you? Uh, yeah, I can't get my computer to even turn on. Oh, okay. Can't get, uh, have you checked the keyboard? What? Oh, the keyboard. Have you checked it? Is it cracked or anything? Oh, you spilled coffee on the keyboard? Uh, no, it's not cracked. And I didn't spill anything on my keyboard. Uh, I tried the power button. I checked the plug in. It works. Uh, it just will not turn on. Uh, can you take another look at the keyboard for me? Uh, count all the letters. Uh, does it have 62, 26, 48, 60, 65 days, uh, 9 or 10 number? Uh, make sure the numbers and the letters and the other buttons are down. What? Uh, no, yeah, no, the keyboard's fine. All the keys are there. I just, I, I, I don't think that would affect the power. Here's what you do. Spray that old keyboard down with some pledge and shine it up with an old rag. That's a, that's a dude trick. That should get you up and running. It's not the fucking keyboard, dude. Oh, now, oh man, doggy, uh, she, she got heat and stuff. Uh, keyboard issues can really put a dent in your day. Uh, have you checked the cast lock key? That won't get me every time. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there was a keyboard manufacturing center in the area at the time. Uh, Ronnie Joe also said he worked at a convenience store for an unspecified period of time shortly after high school, even became the manager somehow. Uh, as an adult, to those Ronnie Joe was not killing, uh, yeah, he seemed to be a, a pretty harmless guy. Uh, Ronnie Herbert, an acquaintance, reported uh, that he dated Ronnie Joe's cousin and often would see Ronald uh, hanging out in Ronnie's lounge, the bar he owned in Homa. Uh, home again, less than 50 uh, miles from Thibodeau, by the way. I uh, never moved far from home. Uh, he said Ronnie was was quiet, kept to himself, never caused problems, rarely drank. He said that most of the time, this is so sad. Most of the time, he just ordered soda and played pool by himself. Whew! This guy's fucking life comes across as <laughs> so sad sometimes. So he's playing pool alone, drinking sodas at the bar. Uh, one identified woman told a reporter he was a very friendly guy. Right? Couldn't ask for a friendlier guy. This lady, about the only person with a kind word about Ronnie Joe, owned a video store down the street from Dominique's uh, sister's home, where he lived for quite some time. Uh, and Ronnie Joe was a frequent customer. She said he rented gay porn videos and sometimes spoke about going on dates with men, also rented comedies and children's movies for his nieces and nephews. Picturing a very strange checkout right now. Just, okay, Ronald, that'll be uh, uh, 11.35 for The Little Mermaid. Uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, uh, Three Cocks and One Butt, and Drowning in Cum Volume 7, White Dicks and Black Holes. Uh, a few months before his arrest, he told the video store owner that the police suspected him of being the serial killer. She told him, if you're the serial killer, then I'm the Queen of England. Well, I guess the Queen of England lives in uh, Homer, Louisiana. Former roommates told the courier he didn't have many friends. He didn't keep friends. The roommate uh, could not recall Dominique uh, ever bringing uh, anyone home. In a 2006 Seattle Times article, reporter Mary Foster described Dominique as a near-broke nobody. Ouch! Again with the depictions of this guy. Uh, Dominique worked odd jobs throughout his adult life, never kept a steady job because of, uh, amongst other things, attitude problems, apparently. Author Fred Rosen wrote that Ronnie Joe had a hard time making friends and was never in a serious relationship. 
despite him saying at that one point that he, you know, was afraid to bring a woman home, uh, you know, that he might've wanted to get married to. So maybe that woman didn't exist. Uh, June 12th, 1985, Ronnie Joe, now 21, gets in some trouble. He is caught, quote, making dirty phone calls. He's actually arrested, charged with telephone harassment, pleads guilty, pays $74 plus court costs. What the fuck was he doing here? I wish there was more details about this in sources. The way it's written, I like to think he might have just been crank calling random people around the area, just saying perverted shit, and that maybe he uh, maybe he forgot how to use the uh, Star 69. Back in the landline days, you could in many places uh, key in Star 69 to call back the last number that called you. And there was another series of uh, buttons you could you could push to try and block somebody from being able to call you back. I, I picture this fucking idiot not knowing about any of that and just calling some random person you know, getting really dirty, you know, not, not even bothering to call someone just like in another town, just calling some local who might know him. Just, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Dude, wish I hold it down. I read a fucking deep. Oh yeah. Oh, you bet you wish I did. You naughty little slut, but you wish I had balls deep in your ass. Don't you Mr. Robodo? And then the guy's, <laughs> the guy's like, Ronnie Joe Dominique. Is that you? Oh no, it's not me. So, and then just click. And then Mr. Robodo just like in fucking star 69 calls him back. And then the dipshit answers. Hello, this is, a, this is a Ronnie Joe Dominique here. Damn it, what was all that about, Ronnie Joe? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about nothing about no dirty talk, uh, Mr. Robodeau. Just click. Uh, skipping ahead eight years now to 1993. He's just been, uh, you know, dinking around. Just odd job to odd job. Uh, we don't know much about what Ronnie Joe's been up to for those, uh, for those years. Playing pool by himself. Babysitting nieces and nephews. Watching porn. Maybe did a bit of crank calling. Uh, definitely paying sex workers to fuck him. Uh, 1993, Ronnie Joe's 29 now, one a- unnamed man. He uh, may have paid for sex from home. I told police in Thibodeau that Ronnie uh, raped him, but then officers did not arrest him. Ronald supposedly picked the man up, took him to Thibodeau. Not sure exactly where in Thibodeau. Uh, he took him, allegedly tied him up, raped him at gunpoint. When questioned, Ronnie Joe said they had consensual sex. Uh, and then he got scared and pulled out a gun to make the man leave. Police chose not to file charges because the uh, victim had a, quote, history of mental problems. Gets away with something here, it seems. Uh, May 15th, 1994, uh, Ronnie Joe is arrested for drunk driving. 30-year-old Ronnie Joe doing more than drinking sodas now at the bar. He's a big boy. August 25th, 1996, another man reports that uh, Ronnie Joe raped him. The man jumped out of Ronnie's trailer window, screamed, he screamed, he's trying to kill me. The man told police that he met Ronnie Joe, agreed to help him buy drugs. Ronnie! Drugs now? No, turning to drugs? What happened to playing a nice game of pool solitaire? Knocking back a Dr. Pepper at the bar. This guy said that they went to Ronnie's home. Ronnie Joe got out a gun, tied him up, said that Ronnie Joe raped him with a knife held to his throat, then kicked him out. Uh, Ronnie Joe's neighbors called the police when they did hear this man screaming, leaving uh, Ronnie's camper. When the police interviewed Ronnie Joe, they asked him about similarities between this case and the previous time the guy made accusations. Ronnie Joe then, quote, admitted the facts of the case, but disputed the series of events. He said now that both men pressured him to head back to his place to fuck and that they asked him to tie them up to make him feel more comfortable because he was skittish. He said, I told them I didn't want to mess with them. And they said, well, why don't you tie my hands? And I said, all right. Oh, good story, Ronnie Joe. Very believable. I bet that happens all the time. Hey, I know you really don't want to sleep with me, but I really really want you to fuck me so bad hot stuff with no friends who no one likes so how about you tie me up weird sad guy I just met ronnie joe told officers that both these guys uh then demanded money afterwards after the sex uh, after the sex which shocked him out of fucking nowhere 
Like he didn't agree to that beforehand. And so he pointed a gun at them as one does and told him to leave. He added in the, in, in the interview, I would never hurt nobody. I'm not that type of person. Uh, yeah. And then these guys lied and just said that he raped them. Uh, officers felt that the story was, of course, very believable and normal. Everything checked out and uh, they stopped bothering him. No, they arrested him. Uh, Lafouche Deputy Sheriff Jimmy McKay arrested Ronald for forcible rape. His bond was set at $100,000. He couldn't afford that, so he had to sit in jail for three months waiting trial. And Ronnie Joe claimed that during these three months, he has raped repeatedly, quote, making his anus particularly susceptible to splitting during sex. Ouch. If true, that does not sound fun to suddenly have a fragile butthole. Nobody wants a fragile butthole. At least I don't think so. If you do uh, want a super fragile butthole, then you should see a therapist because you're, you're fucking weirdo and you got some shit going on. Uh, Ronald was released on November 7th, 1996 because the DA could not find the victim. Uh, Ronald had the right to file a writ of habeas corpus and the case was continued indefinitely. After this, Ronnie uh, promised himself he'd never go back to prison. And now he may have uh, mentally started to uh, make the turn from rapist to serial killer. Terrebonne Parish Sheriff Jerry Larpenter said at a press conference years later, that was the turning point. He didn't want to leave any more live victims. A dead man can't talk. Uh, to further add to the making his anus particularly susceptible to splitting it to sex detail, uh, Ronald said in his arrest interview that in the 1990s, he once worked on an oil platform before the jail raping, I think. It's never made 100% clear. Uh, and that one day while working that job, he ate a black pepper, which went through his stomach, colon, and rectum, which is how digestion works. And apparently really, really fucked him up. He said that uh, kind of like a, almost like a McGill's pop, basically blew his butthole off. It was some pepper. And he ended up having to undergo a surgery. Uh, he got like a, a severe bacterial infection from this pepper. And uh, that affected his ability to have anal sex. That and then being raped a, a million times or so in jail. Uh, this will all become important later because he'll use it as justification for killing victims. And then later on, I will tell uh, another version of this. He kind of told two different, slightly different versions of what happened to his butthole uh, is outside of jail. Uh, so weird that he would use that as an excuse to just, look, officer, I don't, I don't want to kill nobody know how, but listen, I have a very fragile butthole. It's like my puto is made out of a paper mache and uh, cobwebs. Think of, uh, think of a penis as a wolf. Uh, when he huff and puff, he, he blow my butthole down. I have to wipe with a squirt gun. I can't even touch it with three ply. So when a guy make a back door move on me, it's a life or death. It is kill or be drilled and then killed. I don't like it, but that's how it is. It's a card I be dealt. Full house with a rickety and rotten screen door of a butthole. This guy's a fucking maniac. July 14th, 1997, 19-year-old David LaVon Mitchell's body found in a canal off Louisiana uh, Highway 3160 in Honville, Louisiana, St. Charles Parish. David had his clothes on. He'd been raped and drowned. Ronnie's first murder victim. He'd been out of jail about eight months and a 33-year-old uh, not going to risk David telling officers that Ronnie Joe raped him and, you know, and then possibly sending him back behind bars where his soft tissue paper starfish of a butthole uh, will be beaten like a pinata. David Mitchell, last seen on July 12, 1997 in St. Charles Parish. He was attending a birthday party with his mom, Latrice, his grandma, and his aunt, uh, Rita. After the party, according to Rita, they dropped David off at his grandma's house in the little town of uh, Kelowna, he said he wasn't going anywhere. He was going to wait for his uncle to drive him back to Luling, but his uncle never showed up. Rita, Aunt Rita, believes that uh, David tried to hitchhike back to his mom's house. His family didn't hear from him. Uh, the next day, assumed he was with a friend. On Monday the 14th, David's supervisor from the St. Charles Parish Hospital called Latrice and informed her that David never showed up for work. Uh, his work badge and clothes still in his room. David never missed work. 
If he stayed somewhere overnight, he was, uh, you know, he always called his mom, tell her where he was going. David's family now decides to call the police. Family starts to hear rumors that a black man's body has been found in a canal on River Road in Hanville. Hanville, about a 40-minute drive from Homa, about a half hour west of downtown Nola. David's family turned on the TV to watch the news, and their worst fears came true. David's picture flashed across the screen. Cannot imagine what a fucking absolutely atrocious life moment that is. David's family very upset when the St. Charles Parish Sheriff's Office described him as having a high-risk lifestyle. Uh, they wanted people to know that David had recently graduated from high school where he'd worked uh, uh, for the school paper, earned a spot on the honor roll. David wanted to become a coroner or mortician, never struggled with drug or alcohol abuse, uh, did not live a risky-free lifestyle according to his family, typically not a hitchhiker. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, there are other versions of the story where maybe he was doing some stuff that uh, you know his parents were not aware of, which often happens to many of us when we're uh, you know in our later teen years, early 20s. Not going to tell mom and dad and Aunt Rita and everybody exactly what kind of shit we're getting into. Not sure what kind of an offer Ronnie Joe made to get David into the car. Uh, you know, he didn't say I don't think specifically with his victim, but uh, perhaps an offer to pay him for sex. That's the leading theory is uh, what got him in there. Five months later, December 14th, 1997, body of a 20-year-old man, Gary Pierre, is found along a wooded stretch of road in months in St. Charles Parish. Ronnie Joe, his fucking sand dollar butthole, struck again. Motorists found Gary's body. There were no signs of trauma. Sheriff Greg Champagne, uh, or maybe Champagne, no, Champagne, uh, told the press that it was obvious he was dumped in the location where he was found. He had been raped and strangled somewhere else. Uh, back at uh, Ronnie Joe's uh, camper trailer, Gary's cause of death was asphyxiation due to neck compression. Nearly eight months later, August 1st, 1998, the body of a 38-year-old uh, man, Larry Ranson, found in St. Charles Parish. Larry last seen on July 31st. He was found off Louisiana 316 in an industrial area of St. Charles Parish. Died from asphyxiation due to neck compression. Despite evidence of rape, there was no DNA evidence left behind uh, at this or the previous crime scenes, which made police believe that the killer was using a condom. So I guess Ronnie Joe uh, was not always a complete idiot. Murdering piece of shit, but maybe sometimes smart enough to wrap it up. Sometimes. That'll go away here soon. Two months later, October 4th, 1998, the body of 27-year-old Oliver LeBanks found in Metairie, Jefferson Parish. Metairie is a neighborhood just north and west of New Orleans uh, city limits, a large suburb of the metropolitan area of New Orleans that butts up against the edge of Lake uh, Pontchartrain. Detective Dennis Thornton was called out to the 6900 block of Stable Drive behind a baseball stadium to a roadway under an overpass. The victim's legs were protruding from some vegetation on the, uh, by the gravel road. Had no shirt or shoes on. His pants were below his knees. The back of his belt and pants were turned inside out like someone had used it as a handle. His legs and feet made drag marks in the dirt. Uh, there were marks on his wrists and neck indicating he'd been tied up. The victim had a wound on the side of his head as well. Uh, Oliver, Oliver LeBanks was identified by his fingerprints uh, after his autopsy. His autopsy found that he'd been bludgeoned, raped, strangled, caused death, asphyxia due to strangulation, the Bayou Strangler. There was hemorrhaging where the killer put his hands on Oliver's neck. Also hair found on Oliver's body that appeared to belong to a white dude. White person. I know it's white dude. They just knew it was a white person. Investigators also collected semen from Oliver's rectum. So Ronnie already getting reckless and sloppy. Police found Oliver's brother and learned that Oliver lived near the French Quarter of Nola in the Iberville Housing Project. Judy Jason, Oliver's girlfriend, and his brother, Michael LeBanks, spoke with the police, provided details about the night of October 3rd, 1998. Uh, Michael uh, didn't report anything unusual that night. He was out with Oliver and two friends, eventually separated from Oliver, who went with his friends to Rawhide, a bar in Nola. 
Nobody in or around the bar remembered seeing Oliver. Oliver likely went there, according to his friends, with the intention of performing some sex work. Uh, Ronald Dominique was drinking at that bar that night. Author Fred Rosen wrote that Oliver had asked Ronald, you like to have a good time? And Oliver responded, I like to fool around. Ronald said in his post-arrest interview that he uh, didn't have money for a hotel, but invited Oliver to his car instead, asked him if he needed money for sex, told Oliver he just had 20, 30 bucks on him, and Oliver agreed to that price. Two men headed out of the bar towards Roland's, or Ronald's car, Ronnie, Ronnie Joe's car, which was parked next to Jack's brewery. They got into Ronnie Joe's car. Oliver performed oral sex on Ronnie Joe. Uh, then they engaged in mutual oral sex. Ronnie Joe said he asked Oliver to lay down on his stomach, but they had not set a price for having anal sex. Uh, before Oliver could protest, Ronnie Joe pinned him down to the back seat and raped him. Ronnie Joe said to, uh, to him, I was hurt before I was split. I know he went over this, but here are Ronnie Joe's words now about this. Ronnie's uh, statement was interrupted when detectives asked him to elaborate on the butthole situation. And he said, I had to cut inside my rectum when I worked offshore. They had to cut all the infection out when I came in and stitch it. It was from when I messed around with this guy before I went offshore. So not the black pepper this time. Now it's from messing around with this dude. But then he does say, or it could have been the black pepper <laughs> that built up when I was offshore. I started bleeding, getting pale. My gums were raw. I had to come in for surgery. He said that that was the first time he had uh, ever had anal sex. After a surgery, doctors told him that his rectum would be tighter and he would have to take stool softeners and that anal sex would be inadvisable. Later, after this, I think, again, it's not made super clear, uh, supposedly raped in jail. After supposedly now anally raping Oliver, Ronnie Joe said he told him, now get on top of me and rub your thing on me, which is a weird thing to say to someone that you've just raped. Uh, apparently, Oliver did as he was asked. Uh, and then Ronald felt Oliver start to penetrate him. You know, he didn't want to, he didn't want him to do that. And that angered him very much because he almost fucking died. You guys, Oliver just about shattered his cheap ceramic face of a butthole. So Ronnie Joe then picked up a tire iron from the floorboards, hit Oliver on the head with it, hit him a second time. Oliver went unconscious and is laying still now. Ronnie Joe then gets on top of him and starts choking him. Oliver begins twitching, uh, trying to take in breath. Ronnie Joe now uh, wraps his belt around Oliver's neck, pulls it tight, holding it until he knows that Oliver is dead. This is the story Ronnie Joe is telling law enforcement. Ronnie Joe said he then drove to Kenner Jefferson Parish with Oliver's body in the, in the car, and they circled around the New Orleans International Airport for a while. And then uh, eventually he goes down to Stable Drive to an overpass, pulls Oliver's body out of the car, dumps it, and flees the scene. This fucking maniac told police that he didn't like how Oliver maybe kind of raped him back as if that was a justifiable reason to kill him after he admitted raping Oliver. Did I mention how Ronnie Joe, uh, not real bright? I think I did mention that. But it is crazy, like the tone of his initial confession, which we'll get to later in the timeline, but basically like, oh, did I rape him, officer? Yes, sir. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say I, I did do that. And uh, that was wrong. Even I know that. And if you would have asked me to apologize, I surely would have done so. Yes, sir. But he did not do that. No, sirs. He raped me back. And I certainly do know that raping back is as wrong as raping. Yes, sirs. I was raised to understand that two wrongs do not make a right. So I did what I was right in my heart and I beat him about the head and I choked him dead. Yes, sirs. Uh, so he could never rape anyone back again who just raped him again. He was a vengeful menace to society and I'm uh, proud that I helped restore law and order uh, regarding his untimely demise. Uh, okay, Ronnie. Uh, we got all we need there, buddy. Um, yeah, go home now, sirs. Uh, yeah, Ronnie. Uh, you can go home just as soon as the uh, clock strikes never. October 20th, 1998, the body of 16-year-old Joseph Brown now found on Veterans Memorial Boulevard, Kenner Jefferson Parish. Ronnie Joe is struck again, young victim. Joseph was bludgeoned on the back of the head and strangled, bloody plastic bag found near his body. The police believe this killer uh, used it to keep his blood from staining the vehicle when they uh, drove him to the dumping site. Cause of death listed as asphyxi asphyxiation due to strangulation. Uh, 
Joseph, this guy, so young, still a freshman at Hanville High School. Last seen October 19th in the small census-designated community of uh, Abuti. Joseph's relatives told the press and the police that he was a troubled youth who had been involved with marijuana. But they said he appeared to have straightened himself out. Was he troubled? Or did he just like weed? When someone says that someone is troubled but then presents evidence of being troubled as being involved in marijuana, I am not sold on them being troubled. I am sold on the person saying that, they've, uh, uh, that they're troubled, having trouble understanding how fucking marijuana works. Uh, in late November of 1998, the body of 18-year-old Bruce Williams now found in Jefferson Parish. Bruce was found fully clothed in an industrial area. He'd been strangled and raped. Uh, Bruce lived in New Orleans. On the night of November 27th, 1998, he was out walking around the French corner, French Quarter before he went missing. Jefferson Parish reached out to the FBI for assistance. Uh, the profile they sent back, the first profile, uh, pretty skimpy, pretty shitty. Profiler suggested that the killer was uh, some guy, probably white, probably in his 30s or 40s, who uh, maybe lived near the airport. At the time, Ronnie was uh, living briefly in Bouti, about 13 miles from the New Orleans airport. Uh, Bouti, about a 30-minute drive from the from Bayou Blue and from Homa. Uh, May 30th, 1999, the body of another Dominique victim is found. 21-year-old Manuel or Manuel Reed's remains are found in a dumpster in Kenner, Jefferson Parish. All right, Kenner has come up a few times, suburb of New Orleans, uh, button up against Lake Pontchartrain directly to the west of Metairie. Uh, Detective Michael Glasser responded to a call of a black man discarded next to a dumpster. There was no evidence at the scene, so Kenner PD determined that the victim was killed somewhere else and then dumped at that location. The victim again, Manuel Reed, uh, Manuel's family said he spent time in the French Quarter, may have been uh, soliciting sex there in various gay bars. Manuel Reed had ligature marks on his body, but no defensive wounds. Strangled and sexually assaulted, missing some of his clothing, caused of death, asphyxia, due to strangulation again. And again, semen found in his body. Is Ronnie Joe still killing so uh, rape victims won't report him, or is, uh, is he enjoying it now? Based on what he says uh, much later, I'm going to say enjoying it. Uh, June 20th, 1999, the body of 34-year-old Angel Mejia found also in Kenner Jefferson Parish. Angel Mejia found next to a dumpster near the airport. He was last seen at 3 a.m. walking with his friends a mile from where he was found. He was missing some of his clothes, had been raped, semen found again in his rectum, cause of death, asphyxia due to strangulation again. Uh, Angel uh, Mejia knew another one of Ronnie's victims, Joseph Brown. They both had a history of selling drugs. June 23rd, which kind of threw the police off their investigation. Uh, they thought, you know, even though he'd been raped, that it might have been related to, to drugs somehow. June 23rd, 1999, the Kenner, Louisiana AP reported that Kenner police fear serial killer to blame for deaths. Uh, serial killer may be responsible for the deaths of three young men whose shoeless bodies were dumped in isolated areas around New Orleans International Airport over the past eight months. So they are entertaining, obviously, a serial killer. Uh, the victims were young, dark-skinned, killed in one location, dumped in another. All the victims strangled or suffocated. Lieutenant Steve Carraway told the paper, whether it's a serial killer or drug-related, we simply cannot tell at this time. If these are drug-related, this is an unusual way of killing and something we have not seen in this region. It was also reported that previous Ronnie Joe victim, Gary Pierre, knew Joseph Brown and Angel Mejia. Uh, he lived a block away from here, and they were both arrested for drug distribution in 1997. August of 1999, the body of 34-year-old Mitchell Johnson found in Metairie, Jefferson Parish, Again, detectives called out to the 6,900 block of Stable Drive beneath the same overpass, just like with 27-year-old Oliver LeBanks. This victim was found about a foot away from where Oliver had been found. The man's legs were sticking out into the road like he'd been dragged just past his shoulder. There was evidence of strangulation and rape. Investigators immediately connected the two cases, suspected the same killer was involved. The victim also died from strangulation slash neck compression. 
There were less defensive marks on his body than with Oliver LeBanks. Mitchell's family told the police that he had moved around often. He was last seen in Kenner. A witness gave a description of someone who may have been uh, with Mitchell before he went missing. White male, mid-30s, receding hairline, puffy cheeks, excuse me, uh, big bird-like nose, super round, vacant, beady as fuck eyes. Way too close together. Looks stupid. Very stupid. Police now knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the killer was Cajun. Come on, JK, come on. Or a witness gave a description of someone who was a white male, mid-30s with a receding hairline and puffy cheeks and did not say the rest of that inflammatory shit. Uh, sounds like Ronnie. He did have puffy cheeks and a receding hairline at this time. Uh, he's 35 now. This person helped with a composite sketch. The police gave the sketch to a local paper and to, quote, two gay publications in the French Quarter. Kenner PD, within jurisdiction of Jefferson Parish, called the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office to notify them they're investigating another murder of a black male from May 1999, Manuel Reed. Kenner PD and the Jefferson Sheriff's Office uh, started comparing notes and sharing information. In November of 1999, Ronald Dominique quits a job he'd held briefly, uh, working for the St. Charles Parish Maintenance Department, or he was fired, drove his camper to Homa, Louisiana, to the Bayou Blue community, parked on his sister Lainey's property. She lived in Bayou Blue with her husband, and the two allowed him to live on uh, their property. Ronald decided to purchase an actual trailer, park it next to his uh, camper, uh, and gets a job at Carew Produce in town. Later said he tried his best not to stand out for two reasons. One, he was a killer on the run. Makes sense. Two, he was a gay man in a small southern Louisiana town. Also makes sense. Author Fred Rosen wrote that Homa, uh, wrote about Homa, excuse me, beneath Homa's sleepy southern appearance is an undercurrent of abysmal poverty where people live in shacks, can't afford cars or car insurance, and ride bicycles to get around. The town has exactly two gay bars and a slew of others where whatever beer is cheap or on special is the beverage of choice. The poor residents live on the fringes in the shacks and apartments off the main streets of the town bordering the bayou. Sounds delightful. If you want to move there, uh, you can right now buy a four-bedroom, two-bath home on an acre for $67,000. Not fucking kidding. Just looked it up on Realtor.com. In most parts of the country, that's a price from about 40 years ago. Uh, January 1st, 2000, the body of 23-year-old Michael Riddell Vincent is found in Lafouche Parish. Fucking Ronnie Joe. Michael lived in an apartment on Peter Street in Homa, had a history of criminal behavior, used the alias uh, Chris Vincent at one point. He'd previously been arrested for aggravated battery and uh, was known to engage in sex work. Michael had gone missing December 31st, 1999. On January 1st, the next day, a driver on Highway 7 in Lafouche Parish saw a body dumped on a barbed wire fence just off the road and called the police. Autopsy was delayed until January 3rd because of the holidays. Michael had four pieces of crack in his pants pocket, had keys and loose change on him, had two abrasions on his upper chest, two cuts on his lower right side, and a small superficial scrotal abrasion. Ouch. Uh, also had ligature marks on his wrists. His eyes showed fine pinpoint conjunctival, uh, oh boy, patica, uh, patica, bilateral, and one coalescent focus of sclerotic hemorrhage on the right. The uh, patechia are, are red dots caused by leaking capillaries. There are several natural causes for these, but uh, strangulation also a cause. Autopsy report stated circumstances surrounding death are unclear, but subtle findings at autopsy suggest homicidal asphyxia that is the cause of death. Manner of death is homicide. Uh, May of 2000, Ronnie Joe gets arrested. Finally, not for murder. Uh, his antique birdhouse butthole. Still going to be safe for now. Uh, disturbing the peace, he's ordered to appear in court in uh, Homa. Uh, he got into a heated argument in public. Someone called the police. He pled guilty, also paid a fine. No idea what the argument was about. I hope it was about dirty crank calls again. That'd be so great. Just Ronnie Joe, I know it was you. You said your name on the phone. 
when I recognize the sound of your voice. Oh, no, no way, sir. No, I, I never do to talk to you. No, sir, no way, no how. Ronnie, stop lying. I don't lie, sir. When I, do, when I do to talk to you, I make sure not to say my name. So I would not know, or you would not know who I is, sir. I fucking knew it, Ronnie. You just admitted it. No, February 10th, uh, 2002. After this, Ronnie Joe gets arrested at Homa again. Again, not for murder. His peanut brittle butthole, still safe. That one made me laugh the most when I first thought of it. Not going to lie. Pretty proud of peanut brittle butthole. Anyway, what Ronnie Joe uh, gets arrested for is pretty great. He gets arrested for slapping a woman during a Mardi Gras parade. He had confronted her for hitting a baby stroller with her car in a parking lot. And she did do that. And then she apologized for that. And then this crazy fucker still slapped her. To avoid... <laughs> to avoid so ridiculous. I know, Ronnie, I'm sorry. Uh, to avoid trial, he entered a defender's program as an alternative sentence. He was discharged from the program in October of 2002. Uh, after this, the now 38-year-old gets a job as a delivery driver for Domino's Pizza. Rosen wrote, if you happen to live in Homa and you ordered a pizza from Domino's, serial killer Ronald J. Dominique was one of the delivery men who would come to your door. And you all listening right now are so fucking lucky. He ended up working for Domino's and not for Papa John's. That would have restarted that whole thing. Weaker killers, fragile Cajuns, Papa Balsa would butthole. I picture Ronnie Joe saying creepy wild ass shit to people he delivers pizzas to. <laughs> Uh, hello, yeah, this is, uh, this is Ronnie Joe. Uh, here's your large hand-tossed meat lovers, uh, two, uh, uh little Rubia says. Uh, you wouldn't rape me back if I raped you, right? Like, if I raped you, you would not rape me back. That's wrong, right? Uh, Ronald worked for the produce company by the day, Domino's Pizza at night. He also signed up as a member of the local Lions Club, fucking randomly. Also spent time on the weekends calling bingo numbers for seniors. Uh, even more random. Uh, Ronnie Joe knew that if he wanted to continue murdering people, he'd have to find someplace rural and isolated for the for the bodies. His brother-in-law, Sam Trimble, worked at the Dixie Shipyard nearby. To get there, you had to drive about three miles on a dirt road through the bayou. So Ronnie Joe decided that was the right spot for uh, bringing victims. So now he parks his camper slash trailer. Keeps getting called both in sources. I can't figure out if on a sister's yard there was one, there was a camper and a trailer, or it was a, uh, a just the camper got called a trailer, or if he had a camper, then, a, then later bought a trailer. Anyway, he brings whatever the fuck he had, camper, trailer, to a field near the shipyard now. Uh, Author Rosen wrote, apart from some rustling hulks tied up to the weathered wooden dock in front, the place was desolate. Dominique pulled his trailer over to the middle of a field where there was nothing around. It was so dark here at night, the stars stood out bright in the sky. There wasn't a whisper on the breeze. Such a remote, isolated sight would do well. On October 6, 2002, not far from the shipyard, the body of 19-year-old Kenneth Fitzgerald Randolph Jr. is found. Kenneth was found face down in the cane field near a pumping station, naked except for his socks. His wrist and throat showed ligature marks. He had been dead less than 12 hours. He was identified by his fingerprints. Autopsy again found signs of strangulation. He had an abrasion on his forehead. There was also abrasions uh, around his thighs, a contusion on his buttocks, had a large contusion on his right wrist. This all indicated the killer may have forced him down into his chest and forehead to rape him. Kenneth had a hemorrhage on the soft tissue of his neck and his epiglottis, his hyoid bone, was not broken. Investigators collected uh, evidence in a sexual assault kit. The pathologist term, determined that Kenneth died of strangulation and that manual strangulation could not be ruled out. Kenneth lived at 146 Charter Court just off Bayou Blue Road. His birthday was August 29th, 2002. At the age of 18, he'd been arrested for carnal knowledge of a juvenile for having sex with someone between the age of 13 and 17 per court documents. If that juvenile was 13, that's fucked up. If that juvenile was 17, poor bastard got arrested on a technicality. Excuse me, I cannot stop. Uh, Kenneth was arrested again for criminal damage of property. He received a short sentence. And then five months later, he got caught having sex with another underage person, got a felony conviction and a three-year suspended sentence with 18 months probation. Uh, not long before Ronnie Joe found and killed him. 
On October 13, 2002, the body of 26-year-old Anoka P. Jones was found in St. Charles Parish. Anoka Jones found in uh, Booty on the dirt road under the Interstate 310 overpass by a deputy on patrol. There was blood around his mouth. He was lying on his stomach. He had a cut on his lower back. Officer could see drag marks in the dirt. The man's shirt had been raised up. His shorts pulled down to his mid-thighs. Detectives at the scene noticed marks in the dirt that looked like they came from tires, meaning the killer most likely dumped the body there. Anoka was identified by his fingerprints on October 14, 2002. Cause of death, asphyxia by strangulation. Uh, Anoka had been missing from homeless since October 12, 2002. So far, all these victims have been uh, black males. Intentional? More attracted to black men than white men? Coincidence? Was he smart enough to think that maybe law enforcement wouldn't prioritize black victims like white victims? I doubt it. Uh, He does not seem real smart, but who knows? Uh, Noka was first convicted in 1996 for conspiracy to distribute illegal drugs. In 1997, he's convicted of simple theft and battery twice. Noka had a girlfriend named Shelly Weston. On October 12th, Shelly Weston left work and went grocery shopping. She got home between 7 and 7.30. Uh, Noka helped put put the groceries away. At 8 p.m., he rides his bike to go buy a pack of cigarettes. Ronnie Joe happened to be driving through the area. He saw Noka riding his bike, pulled up next to him, asked him to talk. They spoke for a few minutes. Anoka rode back to the apartment he shared with Shelly. He put his bike inside, said he was going to stand outside and smoke, gave Shelly a hug and a kiss, told her he loved her. She went to sleep, wasn't too concerned when Anoka didn't come back quickly inside because, you know, sometimes he, uh, you know, he would say he was going out to smoke and he would leave for several hours. He got into a car with Ronnie Joe. Why did he get in the car? Perhaps for the promise of uh, money for sex. By 10 p.m., Anoka was dead in the backseat of Ronnie's car and then Ronnie Joe was uh, heading towards Interstate 310. I should note that the timeline is inconsistent here from source to source. Uh, Rosen writes that Anoka was found on October 13th, but uh, the next two witnesses will say they saw Anoka on the 13th. So, you know, a little, little date discrepancy. Uh, the police spoke to one of Anoka's friends and to future victim Leon Lorette. Leon said he last saw Anoka on October 13th at 9 p.m., asked him to come over, help move some speakers. After they finished moving the speakers, Anoka asked to use the phone, only talked to someone for a moment before it hung up, told Leon he'd see him later, and then he left. Terrebonne Parish detectives learned that Anoka sold drugs for two drug dealers named Josh Brimer and Barry Greenberg at that time, and he owed him some money. Uh, That explained to them a possible motive for murder, but not for the rape. Anoka's friend, Belle Grimond, said she spoke to him 10.30 p.m. on the 13th. He uh, he called her to tell her he had some shake, uh, crack uh, cocaine crumbs, asked if she wanted to smoke uh, with him. She said she didn't smoke anymore, hung up. Witness Ron Gibbons was at the uh, corner of Knockin' and Hobson when Anoka... Uh, uh, with Anoka when a gray truck pulled up next to him. Two men exited the truck, confronted Anoka. He ran away. One of the men was Big Julius. Gibbons didn't know the man's real name. Big Julius was Julius Bellows, a known drug associate. Detective sees his car, searched for evidence of a murder, couldn't find anything. Julius said that Anoka often came to his house to buy crack, but he didn't kill him. Volunteered his DNA to clear his name and was released. Around that time, uh, Ronnie Joe decided to move his camper back out of the shipyard. So he gets away with it because there's just other people this guy was involved with who the police suspect may have killed him. May 26, 2003, the body of 19-year-old Daytrail Woods found in a sugarcane field in Terrebonne Parish. So many very young men. 19-year-old Daytrail Daytrail was uh, reported missing on May 24, 2003 by his family. On May 26, he was found at the edge of the sugarcane field with his bike. An autopsy uh, listed the cause of death as unknown. He'd gotten out of jail a few months before his death. He lived with his mom and sister in Homa. Around 3 p.m. on May 24th, he changed clothes, spent the next three hours relaxing. Uh, 6 p.m., spoke with his cousin Frank Wilson, told Frank he was going to stay at his girlfriend's house in Mott Trailer Park. Frank told Daytrail that his mom received a call from a man who threatened to kill everyone in her house if he didn't get uh, his rings back. 
Daytrell had broken into a man's house multiple times, this man's house, said the man gave him permission to take things as payment for a debt. Daytrell now goes over to this man's house to smooth shit over. man named Gary Birdwright was waiting for him. Daytrell and Gary had served time in prison together. Gary returned to Daytrell's house in a car with a few other people inside. Before Daytrell got into the car, his mom asked him to get her a glass of water. He got her a glass of water and then got into the car with Gary and the others. Daytrell's mom, Margaret, recalled that he was walking with the white guy named Gary when another white guy who was sitting on the driver's side and the white girl who was sitting on the passenger side passed my house in the white car. It had black stripes. Margaret asked Daytrell not to leave, but he reassured her he was just going to stay close to his friend's house. She reminded him he had an appointment with Social Security on the 27th. Then on May 26th, a man named Corey Hood was out riding his three-wheeler with his cousin Joshua Robicho, who was driving a dirt bike. They were in a field off Highway 56 near Woodland Ranch Road. Woodlawn Ranch Road. Uh, Corey's chain broke, so they headed back to Woodlawn Ranch Road. And Robichaux took a left on the dirt road, saw it look like a body laying on the road. When he got closer, saw the body was puffy. There was a bike a few feet away from the body. Robichaux uh, rode over to Hood, told him what he found. They rode back together, looked at the body, then drove to a casino, asked an employee to call the police. Daytrell was still wearing his blue jeans and socks, but he was missing his shirt when his body was found. Police noticed that his socks weren't dirty, which indicated he was dumped in that location. The bike was also clean. There was no tire tracks in the dirt nearby. His face was swollen. He had blisters on his body, had no ID on him. They identified him by his fingerprints. An autopsy performed on May 28th. No signs of trauma, no defensive wounds, no signs he'd been tied up. Cause of death, asphyxiation. Daytrell's family mentioned Gary as a possible suspect, but gave the wrong last name. A man named Jordan Burdick called to report that at 12.30 to 1 p.m. on May 25th, he passed an area where Daytrell was found, saw a light-colored car parked on the dirt road in the field. A detective spoke to Daytrell's brother, Willie Woods. He mentioned the uh, threatening phone call. The detective also asked the casino for their security footage. Uh, police attempted to make contact with uh, Gary Stevens, wrong Gary, who lived with his mom. She told the police that Gary was in Bayou Blue, hadn't been home recently. Gary's brother told the police they didn't hang out with Daytrell. Gary Stevens was located, questioned, didn't hang out with Daytrell, and uh, they weren't in jail at the same time. The detective tried to make sense of all this shit. Uh, soon connected Daytrell's murder to most of the others before uh, him that we have mentioned and contacted Detective Dennis Thornton, who was working on other Ronnie Joe killings in Jefferson Parish. But you can see, again, a lot of these guys are living these high-risk lifestyles where they're uh, hanging around a lot of people who are uh, have prison records, who may have reasons to want, to want them dead, to kill them, and it just makes the investigation a lot more confusing. January 2004, Ronnie Joe is laid off from Carol Produce. Why? Did they get sick of him telling him uh, uh, or telling him to stop asking customers that if they, uh, you know, if he raped him, that they would rape him back? Uh, did they get too many complaints about his eyes being too small, too close together? Or did he quit because he got a job with Gulf Coast Maintenance in Homa? Yeah, that's the one. He'll work there for about six months. Then he'll get a job as a meter reader, a job he'll also hold for about six months. And he'll use the meter reader job uh, to become familiar with all the roads in the area. Look for new places to hide bodies. October 11th, 2004. The body of 46-year-old Larry Matthews found in St. Charles Parish. Murder victim number 14 for Ronnie Joe. Tropical, tropical Storm Matthew had hit town the day before. Then on the 11th, a man named Jeff Murrow found a body in a pond in uh, Des Almonds. Des Almonds lays right between uh, New Orleans and Homa. Jeff drove uh, to his neighbor, Don Jerome, who saw the body and called the police. The man's remains were found on his right side, knees bent, hadn't gone into rigor mortis yet, had no ID, no socks, no shoes, he was soaking wet, meaning he was dumped in the middle of the night during the storm. Autopsy found blunt force trauma to his shoulder, also soft tissue and intramuscular hemorrhages of the back and buttocks. There were abrasions on the buttocks and vascular hemorrhage within the subcutaneous fatty tissues. But the doctor wrote, signs of violence are not apparent at the scene. Cause of death, 
as determined at autopsy and toxicological analysis considered to be drug overdose, cocaine. Manner of death considered to be accidental, but not accidental fucking Ronnie Joe later admitted to killing him. Fingerprints identified the victim as Larry Matthews from Thibodeau, a known drug dealer and quote, somewhat homeless. Martin, Larry's brother, had last seen him three, four days earlier, was worried. He saw Larry disappear while walking down Charles Street. Four days later, the Thibodeau Sheriff's Office got a call from Homa PD informing them that a man named Jim Jarman said the police were looking for him in relation to Larry's murder. He was visiting a friend in Thibodeau when Larry showed up. He loaned his wife's car to Larry and he didn't return it. Larry said that if he could get, if he could use the car, he would bring back women and drugs. Jarman gave him the keys. Larry left and never came back. Jarman was angry, went to Martin Matthews' house. Martin informed him that uh, Larry was dead. Jarman went to the police station, filed a report about his wife's car. Police canvassed the street. Uh, Jarman mentioned, found witness Calvin Early. Early said that on October 8th, 2004, a white man, two white women, and Larry showed up at a house in a silver car. The description of the white man matched Jim Jarman. Uh, Larry left the house, didn't return. The next day, the police found the stolen car. Four men jumped out, escaped after being pulled over. So much shit going on. Jim Jarman was interviewed a second time and said he was nervous because he was on parole and didn't want to get into trouble. A detective closed the case, ruled the death as an accidental overdose. So Ronnie Joe catching a lot of lucky breaks. October 2004, body of 21-year-old Michael Barnett found in Terrebonne Parish. Uh, Before we talk about this tragedy, let's first talk a bit about the incomparable Patti LaBelle. Remember me talking uh, about that Grammy-winning soul sister right before the timeline? This Patti LaBelle? not smile when you hear that song uh for the past several years this timeline going forward until his eventual final rest ronnie joe has been showing up in gay bars in uh you know the the areas he's been killing you know participating in drag shows dressed as patty labelle oftentimes and singing her hit songs like that one he is obsessed with her i bet he sang the shit out of lady marmalade uh since it's uh you know partially in french part of the chorus translates to do you want to sleep with me maybe give it a, a bit more cajun popularity also, remember how, uh, you know, uh, dressing up as Patty made him happier than anything, but he fucking sucked at impersonating her. When I heard all that, because <laughs> I'm a lunatic, I started to picture him torturing murder, uh, you know, murder victims by forcing them, once they were tied up, to watch him dress up as Patty LaBelle and sing them some of her songs. And then, because my brain is, I don't know, probably damaged, I pictured them begging Ronnie Joe to please just get back to raping them or just to kill them and get it over with, instead of having to fucking continuously listen to him just butcher versions of her song. Just like, please, please, you don't have to do this. You don't have to dress up like Patti LaBelle and ruin her glorious songs. Just, just show some mercy. Just shut the fuck up. And just, I don't know, just rape me or just kill me or something. Just, just, uh, just I don't know, just start talking about your vanilla wafer butthole again or anything but this. And then Ronnie Joe, you know, he's like, I'm going to hurt you, so I know I'm going to make love to your ear holes. But channeling my soul, says the mother of Patti LaBelle. Oh, get you, get you, yada, da, da. Oh, get you, get you, yeah, yeah, here. Oh, mocha, chocolate, yeah, yeah. Oh, Creole lady, marmalade. Voulez sous-sous, c'est assez soir, c'est soir. Voulez sous-sous, c'est assez soir, moi. Do you think I really, do you think I really is Patty LaBelle for those moments of your heaven, sir? That's the kind of shit I think about late at night. I'm tired and a bit loopy. A serial killer torturing victims by forcing them to watch him fucking sing Patti LaBelle songs in a preposterous Cajun gibberish accent. 
Okay, after that short break, back to the sad reality of all this now. I hope you, could, I hope you can't stop thinking about that either. Uh, Michael's body was found in an unlocked unit in a storage facility in Homa, less than a mile from where uh, Daytrail Woods was found. Wendy and Dirk Guidi, owner of uh, Gator Storage in Homa, of course it's called Gator Storage, and one of her employees reported a smell coming from the unit. She saw fluid coming out from under the door. Most of her units were padlocked, but this one closed with a twist tie. She saw that the fluid was blood and there was a naked body dead inside the unit. Homa police, Terrebonne detectives responded to the scene. Please speak with every person who was uh, renting a unit there. None of them had noticed anything unusual recently. Uh, the body severely decomposed when law enforcement found it. No obvious signs of trauma. Michael's body was transported to and then kept in the morgue until he could be identified. Uh, Detective spoke with employee Rod Billings. Two days before the body was found, he was sweeping out cobwebs from a unit, uh, did not notice anything unusual. Next day, a man named Francis Barber went to home with PD to uh, report his friend Michael Barnett missing. He last saw Michael on a Friday night leaving Ruth Street. Michael said he was going to meet a girl at a fire station. Police showed him a sketch of the body. Barber identified him as Michael Barnett based on the tattoos. Firefighters at the station did not report seeing Barnett. Uh, Michael's brother David and his friend Jack Gillings spoke with the police and said that they last saw Michael about four weeks prior. Got into an argument, accused Michael of stealing power tools from Gillings. They were worried because he was missing and thought his roommate Dorian Bates is involved. So now there's another suspect that has nothing to do with this. Uh, at this point, Michael had still not been formally identified yet. David Barnett told the police that Michael was adopted by Chad and Patricia Barnett. David was the Barnett's biological son. Michael was born in Mississippi. Detectives got a warrant to search Michael's home. They hoped to get a fingerprint, identify him. Detectives also requested dental records from Mississippi. Eventually, the coroner was able to identify the body, uh, you know, uh, with uh, accuracy as Michael Barnett, but the coroner could not list an official cause of death due to decomposition. So again, so much confusion, so much with most of his victims, poverty, transitory lifestyles, uh, you know, not the best friends, not the best associates, making it hard to really na- nail down who they were last seen with, which, you know, made it very hard to catch Ronnie Joe. And because they were seen with, you know, people in the uh, weeks uh, prior to their death uh, with, you know, criminal records, sometimes violent criminal records, it really uh, made a, a, a long list of suspects for a lot of these crimes. Almost none of these victims, you know, so far leading super stable lives, working nine to five jobs, keeping regular social schedules, hanging out with families, small group of friends, keeping the same routine. That would have made it so much easier for police if they had. Easier to look for the uh, one person that seemed like out of place in their social scene. Easier to find uh, witnesses who saw them with, uh, you know, someone new. Hard, though, when they're keeping odd or regular schedules, hanging out with new people all the time, hanging out with some shady people. Hard to even determine, uh, you know, who a lot of these victims are, sadly, because no one is reporting them as missing. Uh, Michael was Ronnie Joe's first white victim. He had previous drug use and, according to one source, did not lead a steady life. Ronnie Joe spoke about Barnett's murder and his confession after his arrest. He would say, I came out of the store. He approached me, said he needed to make some money. He said, just like the rest of them, that if I didn't pay him the money, he was going to go to the police and they would put me in jail. <laughs> I guess apparently, I mean, the way he's saying that is kind of weird, but I'm, I'm imagining he's saying that like after they have sex, he now says he's going to go to the police. And it's like, well, yeah, fuck it. That's how business works. Uh, that seemed to continually perplex him. That people who came to his place or interact with him uh, for the promise of money to have sex with him then wanted that money afterwards. Uh, dumb fuck Ronnie Joe now said, uh, I panicked. I choked him with an extension cord. Till he stopped, till I didn't notice that he was moving. I just put him in my truck. I was going to get rid of him. I went to a mini storage. It's behind the pizza place by the airbase. No, there was no gate. I just drove to the back, opened the door, put him in. I don't know. I just dragged him by his wrist and just put him in. I closed the door, got in my truck. I went to ride. I don't remember. I threw his clothes somewhere. I, I don't remember. I just threw it out the window. 
What a criminal mastermind. Just haphazardly tossing another body somewhere after an impulsive kill and then just, you know, tossing fucking clothes out the window. <laughs> he drives off. It's ridiculous. He got away with what he did for so long. February 20th, 2005. Now, the body of 22-year-old 22, 22 Leon Lorette found on the Homa Air Base in Terrebonne, Paris. This is that guy that had talked to investigators previously about another murder victim. Uh, the Homa Shrine Center was located in front of the air base, a small airport in Homa. There was a grassy field behind the Shrine Center. And on February 19th, Ronnie dumped uh, Leon's body in that field. On February 20th, Steve and Vincent Pym went to the airbase to ride dirt bikes with their friend Donald Clenadon. Clenadon saw clothing in the grass, realized it was a body. The man was wearing jeans and socks, was missing his shoes and shirt. Uh, his wrist, back were blue. Flies were swarming the body. Detective uh, Simon Fryman. <laughs> I'd actually, I never noticed that. Simon Fryman. All right. Detective Simon Fryman of Homa PD. Uh, who'd responded to multiple crime scenes by this point, recognized the victim as Leon Lorette, a friend of Anoka Jones, right? Who had been arrested in the past, another African-American victim. Leon had small wounds on his chest and marks on his neck. There was a small amount of blood in his body and his nostrils. An autopsy found hemorrhaging in both of Leon's eyes. The doctor determined Leon was drunk when he died and it wouldn't have taken much uh, force to kill him. He was strangled in the same way as the other victims. Fryman drove to Leon's house, spoke to his mom, uh, Fryman saw a small blood stain on a recliner, blood in the living room. The blood was swabbed for comparison. Leon's friend, Mark Donaldson, saw him about six days earlier at Laverne's bar by a mobile station. He was drinking at the bar and Leon tried to enter with the beer, but was refused entry. He left the beer outside, entered the bar. Mark bought Leon a bar, uh, a beer. <laughs> he bought him a bar and they uh, went into business. No, they, uh, they drank together. Leon left. Nobody had seen him since. Joey Gazzo was the last known person to speak to Leon. He and Mark Donaldson stayed in his house that, uh, for the night. They left in the morning for work with Mark's brother, Daryl. Came home around 5.30 p.m. He and Mark went to Laverne's bar. He left to get something to eat. When he got home around 9 p.m., Leon called up, called, excuse me, and asked to speak to his mom. Uh, he said he was drunk, high, and didn't know where he was. And then the phone went dead. Leon's mom hadn't heard from him in three days and called the police. Gazzo remembered that Mark Donaldson and Dorothy, Leon's mom, got into an argument. Mark made a comment that the police might find Leon dead. The clerk at the mobile gas station told the police to speak to Deidre Porter. Porter said she saw Leon during the day, February 14th to 15th, talking to a white man in his 20s with a bright purple car. Detective Fryman, Simon Fryman, uh, heard that a man and a woman were being interviewed about another case. They once lived at the Sugar Bowl Motel, a place known for sex work. The woman identified herself as Marie Maples. She said she didn't know Leon, but saw him at the motel last week, about four days before his body was found. Saw him in a white suburban with a white man. Leon was wearing a white t-shirt with white underwear, baggy blue jeans, red cap on sideways. The white t-shirt was missing from Leon's body. When he was found, the rest was there. Uh, the suburban pulled up next to Laverne's bar near a motel. Leon got out of the truck. The white man driving the suburban was urging him to hurry up. White man wore a red cap, had a busted lip and walked with a limp. And it was Ronnie fucking Joe. But police just couldn't get a good enough description from anyone to track him down. March 3rd, an officer from Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office contacted Detective Fryman. Detective Simon Fryman! Uh, the sister investigator saw someone at the airbase on February 19th who appeared to be extremely nervous. That person was driving a maroon car parked near a tree by the uh, Huma Shriner, Shriners building. The driver was a white man, smoking a cigarette, staring at traffic passing by. He was wearing a white t-shirt, blue jeans, had a normal haircut. Too many fucking people these guys are hanging out with, right? It's because of the, the, the sex work, it makes it, again, so difficult. Which one of these, who are these people? Which one might be the killer? April 2005, several Louisiana law enforcement agencies come together with help from the FBI to try and identify this serial killer that they just, you know, are not getting any leads on. The two heads of the task force are Don Bergeron, Terrebonne Parish, and Dennis Thornton from Jefferson Parish. 
Bergeron and Thornton, plus other task force members, will work unpaid overtime for months in their efforts to catch Ronnie Joe before this is all over. April 9, 2005, the body of 32-year-old August Terrell Watkins found in a ditch in Lafouche Parish. He had been, and this is, uh, this is really fucking brutal. This guy had been tragically Patty labelle to death. Based on his facial expression, the time of his death and the horrid state of his eardrums combined with the condition of his heart, the coroner was able to positively determine that he had listened to a bad rendition of either Lady Marmalade or more likely Patty LaBelle's timeless duet with Michael motherfucking McDonald on my own one too many times. And his heart gave out after his eardrums melted. The coroner, based on how bloody the victim's eyes were, theorized that the killer wore a mask that was half Patty LaBelle, half Michael McDonald, and would turn back and forth terribly singing each person's part of the duet until the victim was dead the victim tried to scratch out their own fucking eyes so they hadn't wouldn't have to witness this blasphemy anymore many times i said it was forever i said our love will always be true Something in my heart, something in my heart always knew. I would, I would be lying, I would be lying here beside you. I, I'm gonna rape you, and I, I don't want you to rip me back. And so, I, so I just wanna lie, I just wanna lie here on, on my own. I'm my own, I'm my own, but with you, as well, on my own, but with you as well. Sometimes I just still wish I was working on keyboards. I'm my own. So many promises. Now I'm, I'm Michael McDonald. If you see if I turn my face, it's never should be spoken. I can be Patty LaBelle or I can be Michael McDonald. Now I know what level you cost. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Now we're talking divorce. But which is crazy? Which is crazy talk? Because we won't. We won't even marry it. We won't even never even marry it. I just this whole time I just I wish I was always I was I was on my own. But once 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 again now. Once again now. C'est le voulu c'est One more time by myself. You are fucking welcome. God. That was great, wasn't it? For the six people still listening. <laughs> again, I know that was fucked. That was ridiculous. Uh in reality, back to sad reality once more. August Watkins. That is quite a picture, though. Before we get back to sad reality, can you just picture? That's like, uh, now I'm thinking of that Buffalo Bill scene in Silence of the Lambs, but replace, you know, the song he was doing with Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald. Like, if he had, like, makeup, mask to be, like, a uh, black woman on one side of his face, white man on, on the other, and just going back and forth while someone's tied up. It's pretty absurd. Uh, in reality, August Watkins found fully clothed in a wooded area near the Lafouche Work Release Center. A driver saw him, called the sheriff's office, and initially listed as a John Doe. Uh, Lieutenant Todd Charlotte responded to a call about a man's body found on a gravel road off Highway 90. August was lying face down in a ditch. Landry Watkins, August's brother, spoke to Bayou Blue documentary filmmakers about his brother's death. Said the last time they spoke, they were cutting hedges together. Landry asked him if, it was, uh, if he was okay, if he needed money. August said he was doing all right. They told him if he ever needed anything, he could stop by his house, which he would have. Uh, on April 11th, Detective Fryman, Simon Fryman, Received a uh, bolo, be on the lookout about August Watkins. Figured this victim was also murdered by the Homa serial killer. Some people are starting to call the Bayou Strangler. 
Autopsy took place the same day. Coroner ruled it the manner of death, strangulation. August Watkins identified later that day by his fingerprints. The Lafouche Parish Sheriff's Office located his next of kin. An aunt named Pearl Dixon, Pearl Nixon, excuse me, Detective Fryman, Detective Ty Hutchins drove to August's last known address. A woman named Sandra Hooten answered the door, said that August was her neighbor, but was evicted a few months ago. After interviewing a ton of family members and acquaintances, law enforcement finds out that August had been hanging out with a short, heavyset white man shortly before he disappeared. But it was not Ronnie Joe. Fucker slips away again. Still not even on law enforcement's radar. Uh, uh, April 28, 2005, the body of 23-year-old Kurt Cunningham found in Lafouche Parish. Kurt was killed as the uh, state was in the process of reorganizing the serial killer task force. Kurt was another white victim who lived in Thibodeau. Uh, last seen April 8th. Kurt found in a ditch off Highway 307 in Kramer. Some of his clothing was missing. The coroner would conclusively determine, uh, excuse me, the coroner, the coroner, my God, uh, could not conclusively determine his cause of death. Also couldn't rule out asphyxiation. There we go. Those are the words I was looking for. July 2nd, 2005, the body of 28-year-old Alonzo Hogan found in St. Charles Parish. Alonzo found in a cane field in St. Charles Parish off Highway 306. Found with his clothing on, he'd been strangled and raped. August 16, 2005, body of 17-year-old Wayne Smith found by a worker off Grand Caillou Road in Terrebonne Parish. Men or death undetermined, strangulation or suffocation could not be excluded. Uh, he is Ronnie Joe's 20th victim and police still not any closer to catching Ronnie Joe, rotten eggshell butthole, Dominique, than they were after the first guy killed. And then Hurricane Katrina hits the very next week and the task force members are pulled into relief and recovery efforts. Meanwhile, Ronnie Joe keeps killing. Next month, in September of 2005, the body of 40-year-old Chris DeVille found in Assumption Parish, found fully clothed, dumped in a ditch off Highway 1. On November 9, 2005, the body of 21-year-old Nicholas Pellegrin found south of Thibodeau in Lafouche Parish, victim number 22. 41-year-old Ronnie Joe has been at this for almost a decade now, still not on the task force's radar. November 5, 2005, Nick Pellegrin was working on his friend's house when a, a meter reader showed up. Oh, Ronald stale, crumbly pumpkin bread butthole, Dominique. Ronnie Joe asked Nick, hey, how about uh, I come back uh, later after work? Uh, we go have some fun. Nick agreed, asked him to come back when he was done working. Uh, that night, Ronnie Joe stopped at a payphone, called Nick to let him know he was on the way. Later drove Nick back to his trailer on his sister's property. And then Nick was reported missing on November 7th. November 9th, he was found by a person driving a four-wheeler in a wooded area in Lafouche Parish, was found fully clothed, unlike some other victims, uh, had ligature marks, actually fully clothed, unlike any of the other victims. I don't think any of those were uh, fully clothed. He had ligature marks on his wrist. Nick also had a head laceration and had been raped. Manner of death was ruled homicide due to strangulation. Task Force head Don Bergeron uh, notes later that this was the only case uh, where uh, there had been prior contact with the victim, but it still doesn't crack the case. Uh, later that month, though, the task force does finally receive a tip that will later help finally end their investigation. The task force receives word that the killer may indeed be the godmother of soul, fucking Patty LaBelle. Someone looking exactly like Patty LaBelle, except for their white, bald, male, bearded, beady-eyed, and sexually repulsive, uh, has been seen with all the victims shortly before they went missing. No, but they do receive a helpful tip, though. Officer Bill Knoll received a report from the family member of one of his parolees, Ricky Wallace. Ricky's mom called Knoll and said Ricky was having nightmares about being tied up and that she thought he was involved with the homo serial killer, the Bayou Strangler. Ricky Wallace spoke on the Bayou Blue documentary about his experience with Ronald Dominique. He said he was walking down the street by a dog park when he saw a car pass by two to three times. 
Uh, on, uh, this, uh, and then, uh, then again, passes by on the third or fourth time. This man uh, stops, shows him a picture of a woman, tells him he can make money by having sex with this woman. Doing this, doing that, he says. Ricky believes him, gets in the truck. They head to Bayou Blue. He describes the driver as a heavyset white man. When they get to the guy's trailer, the man tells Ricky to get undressed, wrap up in a towel, lay on his stomach, and that uh, he will then tie him up. Ricky is now concerned because there's no woman hanging around. The man uh, tries to keep talking him into it. Uh, Ricky says he told him, you can talk a hole in your head. I ain't getting tied up. I love that phrase, actually. You can talk a hole. You can talk a fucking hole in your head. Uh-uh. Uh, they now get into an argument you know, inside the trailer over Ricky refusing to be tied up. He uh, says he has to use force to get the man out of his way to, to get out of the trailer, uh, demands to be brought back to where the guy picked him up. Uh, he sends the man had a super weak, fragile crepe paper butthole and he poked it, dropped that guy to his knees. No, he just talked the guy to give him a ride. Uh, he said that the man drove Ricky back to where he picked him up and that uh, while he was driving, he kept running his hand over uh, the side of the door panel like he might be grabbing for something. Ricky said if he did that again, he was going to hit him with a bottle. The guy calms down. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Ricky feels uh, safe. He gets driven uh, to the uh, drop-off location and gets out of the car and then never sees that guy again. Never mentioned the incident to anyone, uh, but then he knows that there is a serial killer in Homa, uh, but doesn't connect that to this guy uh, for a little while. By the time he realizes he has survived an encounter with a serial killer, he thinks it's too late to do any help, but then he hears that someone he uh, knows has been murdered and decides to come forward. Officer Noel picks Ricky up, gets him to agree to make a statement. On the way to the police department to make the statement, Noel asks Ricky if he could show him uh, where this guy lived. Ricky says yes and directs him to Bayou Blue. This tip will lead to Ronnie Joe ending up on the suspect list, right? Because he takes him to his uh, sister's house and they learn about his previous arrests. And now he becomes the primary suspect but they still don't have enough evidence uh, to arrest him. Investigators do put Ronnie Joe under surveillance for the next two months. The task force doesn't have the funds uh, for extended 24-7 surveillance, so detectives do it on their own fucking time. Hail that fucking task force. So commendable. Volunteering their free time after already working a ton of overtime hours, I'm sure on this case, to protect their community. All right, gotta praise uh, men and women in blue where they excel at their very important jobs, meat sacks, or they're gonna find other jobs and we're gonna be fucked. January 12, 2006, detectives decide to approach Ronnie Joe for an interview. He agrees to answer questions, rides with them to the police station. Uh, Ronnie doesn't remember Ricky Wallace's name, but does remember what happened. He says he didn't do anything wrong and that his earlier arrest was also unfair because that victim, that victim tried to rape him. Uh, When asked for his DNA, he said, what's all this about? But then does agree to hand over a DNA sample. Uh, He willingly hands over a saliva swab, which will later be matched to two victims. Unfortunately, due to an underfunded crime lab and dealing with the Hurricane Katrina recovery effort still, it takes a while to get those results back. And during that time, Ronnie Joe kills again. October 16, 2006, the body of 27-year-old Christopher Sutterfield found in Iberville Parish. Victim 23. Christopher lived in Thibodeau. He went missing on October 15, 2006 after visiting some friends in Homa. He was found shortly after his death off, to, uh, off Highway 69 in Iberville Parish, had ligature marks on his body, and had been raped. Coroner took swabs from Christopher's rectum. His cause of death is asphyxiation by strangulation. Chris was found just 11 days before DNA from the Oliver LeBanks and Manuel Reed cases would be matched to Ronnie Joe. Damn it. The task force got a mito, mito, oh my God, mitochondrial DNA match to the semen. I just sit up straight to pronounce that correctly for some reason. Mitochondrial. Uh, DNA match to the semen found in Oliver LeBanks rectum. Author Fred Rosen wrote, usually taken from a suspect's hair, mito- mitochondrial DNA can only, I just fucking, why do I have to sit with proper posture to say that word? 
uh, can only narrow the suspect down genetically to a given family. The results are therefore impeachable in court by a good defense attorney. What was needed for an airtight conviction at trial was a match of nuclear DNA. Nuclear DNA includes much more of the individual's uh, genome or genetic makeup, a direct match. After getting the mitochondrial DNA match from the Oliver LeBanks case, they decided to surveil Dominique from the church parking lot across from his sister's house. A second DNA match then comes from semen found in uh, Angel Mejia's rectum. But this was also mitochondrial DNA. Uh, the task force was extremely frustrated because they knew Ronnie Joe was the fucking killer. And they, you know, and, and they knew he had killed under surveillance, but they just still didn't have that airtight evidence they wanted. Uh, Dennis Thornton, the Jefferson Parish Task Force head, now asked for two warrants. Uh, though, for the arrests of the, uh, for the murders of Oliver LeBanks and Manuel Reed. Uh, Manuel Reed. Why, I, why can't I say his name right either? Around this time, Ronnie Joe's sister, Lainey, kicks him out because of how sick she is of hearing about how fragile his fucking butthole is. She is so tired of her brother asking her to gently apply Neosporin and aloe vera to his butthole all the time to massage it on there. She felt that that was inappropriate. She'd also gotten sick of him always complaining about how you can't rape anyone anymore without worrying about them raping you back. No. Uh, she was sick of the constant surveillance Ronnie Joe was under and uh, and he moved out and into a local homeless shelter now. Wouldn't stay there long. A few weeks later, uh, Ronnie Joe is arrested December 1st, 2006. Members of the task force located him at the bunkhouse homeless shelter in Homa. Uh, Ronnie's sister, Lena, Laney, excuse me, directed Thornton and Bergeron to the homeless shelter to make that arrest. And initially he is charged with two of 23 suspected murders, right? They still don't have that airtight evidence they want. They just have the, uh, the mitochondrial DNA on Manuel, Manuel, Jesus Christ, Reed and Oliver LeBanks. Uh, that even though he really uh, makes this an easy kind of, you know, sealed airtight case for them when uh, he starts talking for hours and just uh, confesses to 23 murders and rapes. Uh, when they first arrested, you know, they had, they had uh, no clue how he picked up his victims. They had theories, but they weren't positive, you know, that he was the serial killer they were looking for. And then this interrogation goes on and holy shit, does he give them everything and more that they wanted? Captain, Captain Dennis Thornton and Captain Don Bergeron interview this genius. They start by discussing the murders uh, in New Orleans and Jefferson Parish. Ronnie starts talking. Holy shit, does he start talking. Fastest confession I can recall ever hearing a serial killer make. Uh, they only were trying to leak him to, you know, positively to two murders when they bring him in. Uh, he does not ask to have an attorney present doesn't try and evade any questions, immediately starts confessing to all sorts of other murders. They didn't even have him pegged as committing during the uh, you know first interrogation. He even starts confessing to the murders of men whose deaths had not been ruled as homicides. People uh, they didn't think were even murdered. Despite all this confessing, uh, I think Ronnie actually believed he was going to get away with everything and still be let go. He thought they were going to buy his stories about how he had to kill these guys. Ronnie Joe tells these uh, detectives, uh, that he had to kill these men to protect himself. Uh-huh. Because he was convinced that they were going to rape him. Do you have any idea how fragile his tiny butthole is? It's like a poop net made out of fucking baby hair. His, his life is so, oh, he could just die so easily. So, uh, you know, he reacts and accidentally kills these guys. The following is a quote from his interview about victim uh, Manuel. I don't know why, is it Manuel or Manuel? Manuel. It's got to be Manuel. Manuel Reed. Victim number seven. He says, we were supposed to give each other head and he told me I could put my thing in him. <laughs> this is a direct quote. And I was going to pay him and he was just going to go. He just needed a little money to get some food. Ronnie Joe said he was in laying on his stomach in the back seat, the victim on top of him. And he says, he grabbed me by my lower shoulder and by my back and he shoved it in. I panicked and I turned my body and grabbed the tire tool and hit him and fell. 
he started coming to and started pulling. So I grabbed the rope because I was scared. I started choking him. And the next thing I knew, his hand fell to the side. And I noticed he wasn't breathing. I got out and I got in the front. I went to drive somewhere it was where it was dark so I could get rid of him and go home. I drove somewhere where they had an overpass and it was dark. I just grabbed him by his arms and pulled him out. It was dark. I just hurry up. And when I start seeing light, I turn my headlights on and I just went home. He panicked, you guys. He just wanted this guy to rub his weenus gently around the surface of his poop chute, probably with some gold bond healing lotion. And then that predator jammed it in and nearly tore Ronnie Joe in half. Uh, Ronnie Joe said of Oliver LeBanks, victim number four, I met him in New Orleans and he wanted to fool around. He said Oliver approached him, asked if he wanted to fool around. Then he said, we went to my vehicle because I had not much money. Another exact quote. He parked by Jack's Brewery in a parking lot. He asked for 20 bucks. And then he said, and we went where my car was parked and we got to the back seat and we pull our clothes down to our knees and we start fooling around and we gave each other head. And then he laid on his stomach and I put it in him. And then after he got on top of me, pulled a knife out, told me I better give him all my money and he was going to fuck me or he was going to kill me. Man, what is with these guys so determined to skewer Ronnie Joe's super tight bubblegum butthole blanket? The world is just full of dicks waiting to be rammed into Ronnie Joe, apparently. Uh, Ronnie said he was scared. I reached down, I grabbed something, I hit him. I got so scared, I started choking him. And I, then I realized he wasn't breathing no more. I jumped out of my car and got in the driver's seat and went and dropped him off. Like he says, like dropped him off. Like he's just a passenger. <laughs> not like not a murder victim. Just like some guy who's annoying him. I, just, I dropped him off. I just had to get rid of him. Ronnie Joe said his confession that he often walked the streets from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. He claimed he offered victims $200 to $300 usually for sex. Uh-huh. If he felt like they were heterosexual, he showed them a picture of his, quote, wife, that was really his niece, and said she was waiting to have sex with him, or with them. Uh, Ronnie Joe explained that he would have roughly a five-minute conversation with his victims, during which time he would determine if they were gay or straight. If he thought they were gay, he would ask them to have sex with him. If he thought they were straight, he would present that woman's picture or uh, offer to uh, smoke weed together. His first statement ended December 1st, 2006, 7.19 p.m. In just a couple hours, he confessed to all 23 murders. Again, many of which were not on detectives' radar. The Bayou Strangler, the, the home serial killer, had been caught and will never be free again. After making a statement, uh, Ronnie Joe, I, I found this interesting, requested that the uh, detectives call his sister and tell her what happened. He said he didn't want to uh, make the call himself. He said he didn't uh, mean to hurt his godchild or his sister. He explained that when he got out of jail previously, he just wasn't the same person. He was fucking Patty LaBelle. Man, it pissed him off that the world didn't recognize that. Gitsy, gitsy, yada, da, da. Gitsy, gitsy, yada, chocomokomolata. I don't know, maybe he said something like that. No, he said his mom should have noticed that he needed help, but instead he was bullied. And I kind of feel bad for him here, but also fucking get your own help, buddy. Right? Why are you blaming your mom? Uh, December 2nd, 2006, the day after his confession, Ronnie took the task force to all 23 body dump sites as part of a quickly arranged plea deal that he was hoping to get. That evening, they sat down together, uh, sat down again together to clear up some details about his life and crimes. Ronnie Joe told him uh, he was molested twice when he was younger, bullied by his family and friends, Claimed he was also falsely accused of raping the first two victims and then got beat up and raped in jail. He said, I proved I was innocent and I got out. I was angry. Well, you didn't prove you're innocent. You got the the person they couldn't find them to testify against you. Uh, He said, I did something to some of the guys and then I got raped by a guy and I protected myself and I killed him. And then another one tried to rape me and stab me and I killed him. I took all the anger out on the rest of the guys and I shouldn't have took it out of them. I know I took them from their family and hurt their family. I guess at least he takes some kind of responsibility here. 
He explained that he started killing people when he left jail because I was angry because I didn't do it. And I was put in jail and treated bad and was beaten. And now he quickly goes from saying he was just defending himself, uh, you know, from uh, these guys to owning up to a lot of it, which is rare with serial killers, right? In his first statements, Ronnie Joe said that most of the victims wanted to have sex and he killed them because he feared they were going to hurt Rob or go to the police. But then a few days later, you know, he says, uh, you know, no, he was luring murder victims to his trailer. He said, some of them I picked up saying that, you know, showing a picture of a girl. Also, I said that they get to fool around with the girl and the girl got hurt. They said, hey, you know, they had to be tied up before she came over, but it wasn't true. He said he used a picture of a woman because it was the easiest way to lure them in. He said that it didn't matter to him if these victims were gay or straight. I just took uh, it out and they had no reason. They'd say they wasn't like that and I'd still do it. I'd rape them. He confirmed that all his victims were raped. He said uh, they either thought they was going to have sex with a woman and money or me and money. And the detective Detective Thornton asked, uh, what would have happened had we not brought you in? And Ronnie said, getcha, getcha, ya, da, da, da. Gitchy, gitchy, ya, ya, here. Mocha chocolata, ya, ya. Creole lady, No, no, he said, uh, I don't know. I was trying to stop. I didn't mean to do any of this. Thornton continued, Do you think it would have continued? And Ronnie said, Maybe so. It just hurts. I'm sorry. I can't get out of my mind. What went on? Uh, the statement ended December 3rd, 2006, 2.53 a.m. Uh, comes across here like he wanted it all to stop, like he felt bad about what he was doing. I don't think that was true, though, based on some other shit he said. I think he was a people pleaser in certain situations, wanted the investigators to think he was a good dude, despite what he had done with a lot of his statements. I think he revealed his true nature in another statement. Dennis Thornton told uh, Mark of a uh, of a serial killer documentary team, I can remember him telling me, I can remember a time when it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm right uh, and I'm in, sorry, these fucking quotes. And I'm in, I guess the right lane it's supposed to be. And I'm in the right lane, stopped at a stoplight. And I look over and there's a police cruiser and the policeman's looking at me and I'm looking at him. And I got somebody rolled up in a carpet right here. And you know what I'm feeling like, Dennis? I feel like God. So there we go. He liked the power, right? Pretty common. Uh, the guy who'd been bullied, the guy who almost no one liked, the guy who couldn't get a boyfriend, who didn't have much going on. Frankly, in any aspect of his life, he liked the power he had of tying someone up, someone he could do anything he wanted to, someone whose life was in his hands. He could, he could fuck him. He could kill him. He could do whatever he wanted. That's why he kept doing it. M- uh, Monday, December 4th, 2006, law enforcement holds a press conference to announce that Ronald Dominique has confessed to 23 murders. Jeff Bernanazzi, special agent in charge of the New Orleans FBI, said this was the most significant serial killer case in the country in terms of the number of victims and the length of time he was at it. Terrebonne Sheriff Jerry Larpenter said sex is the motive. Sex is behind all the killings. Uh, Psychologists have said more like power than sex. but Yeah, okay, yeah, sex and power. Ronald Dominique was charged with nine more murders later that day in addition to the two he'd been brought in on, bringing the total at that time to 11, 10 first-degree murders, one second-degree murder. Would have been charged with the others, but uh, they were trying to confine the murders, uh, you know, that they were going to try him with to uh, one parish to keep court costs down. Uh, Ronnie Joe walked into the courthouse, assisted by two officers and leaning on a cane now. He had a heart attack a few days after, uh, a few days before his arrest, excuse me. According to the sheriff, he had minor heart problems, already had a doctor's appointment scheduled. Sheriff pointed out that just a few months ago, he was able to carry around bodies of grown men he had killed, even though now he appeared weak and in poor health. Sheriff Larpenter added, he stated how, when and where they were killed, his MO matched every victim out there. The description that he gave, he wasn't a police officer. He puts himself uh, where he dumped at dump sites. So we know for a fact from his confession that it was adequate, accurate, and direct. According to Sheriff Larpenter, once detectives started the interrogation, Ronnie Joe eagerly confessed. 
He said, we've been talking to him just a short period of time and he just started giving it all up. I don't know what prompted. Maybe he just wanted to clear his conscience. Larpenter added he thought, uh, his thoughts, excuse me, added his thoughts on a possible motive saying, he's nothing on the street, a nobody. But here he had power. Once he got those ropes on them, they were his. Yeah. Uh, Ronald agreed, uh, uh, or excuse me, appeared in the courtroom via video call on December 5th for his bond hearing. Uh, Judge George Lark set the bond at a million dollars per victim. So not going to make bond. Uh, Sheriff Jerry Larpenter said that the paperwork for the ninth case would be most likely filed December 6th, 2006. Uh, DA Mark Rhodes meets with the DAs of other parishes and informs them that they can definitely prove eight homicides have occurred in Terrebonne Parish. Do they really need to do anything else, right? They didn't want multiple cases happening at the same time because defense attorneys would have filed motions to delay proceedings or exclude evidence. There was no reason needed to go forward with the uh, other prosecutions if Terrebonne could prosecute and convict him. Other jurisdictions agreed. So now they're just going to go with the eight. DA Mark Rhodes makes three promises to the uh, families of victims. He says that Dominique will be convicted. He will get the death penalty. And uh, in 12 to 14 years, he will be executed. Well, not all of that will happen. January 16th, 2007, uh, Ronnie Joe now pleads not guilty to nine counts of murder. He is suddenly worried about being executed. He hadn't initially gotten the deal he wanted for quickly confessing to all the murders. But then on September 23rd, 2008, 44-year-old Ronnie Joe pleads guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder. Now he does have the plea agreement he wants. He's charged with murdering victims uh, Kenneth Randolph, Michael Barnett, Leon Lorette, August Watkins, Kurt Cunningham, Alonzo Hogan, Chris DeVille, Wayne Smith, and Nicholas Pellegrin. Uh, those are the eight victims from Terrebonne Parish. He pleads guilty. Uh, he uh, is going to get life in prison with no possibility of parole. And now the state will avoid a, a trial that will cost millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and actually, he gets eight life sentences, so he'll never have a whiff at parole. Uh, Ronald's attorney, Richard Gorley, that dick we mentioned earlier, told the press any pursuit of charges would be a waste of taxpayers' money because he's already serving a life sentence. Ronnie Joe's sister Laney spoke with the families after the hearing and apologized for his brother's monstrous deeds. Uh, D.A. Mark Rhodes said in the Bayou Blue documentary that uh, because Ronnie Joe feared jail so much, so worried about that fragile as a fucking wall made out of cotton balls butthole of his, that he got the worst punishment possible, worse than being executed. And most of the victim's families agreed. Today, Ronnie Joe, Ronald Joseph Dominique, 58 years old, uh, incarcerated at the Louisiana State Pen- Penitentiary in uh, Angola, Largest maximum security facility in the U.S. Roughly 6,300 dudes incarcerated there. So many dicks. So many opportunities to rip through Ronnie Joe's peanut brittle butthole like a fucking football team ripping through the banner to take the field. Ronnie Joe's still alive, but I have to imagine his butthole died many years ago. R.I.P. R.J.B.H. R.I.P. Let's get out of here. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Okay, before I recap all this insanity, a uh, another quick sponsor. Right. Today's Time Silk is brought to you by Ronnie Joe's Bayou Cajun Keyboard Repair. Uh, hey, there, uh, uh, Madam, uh, uh, you have the, the problems out here on the, on the Bayou? Well, uh, I, I get them fixed for you. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I will figure out what the problems with your keyboards uh, so the whole computer will work right. If I can't fix it, I won't charge you. I ain't going to rape you on prices, but if I would to rape you, I sure hope you don't uh, certainly rape me back. I got a butthole made out of frog eggs and gator eyelids. Yes, sir. So let me fix your keyboards. Yes, sir. Uh, I'll give you the best price on the bayou, but uh, you gotta make sure you don't rape me. I, I, I got to insist I tie you up first. Everybody wins. Uh, you get your keyboard all fixed. You get a good darn price. 
and my butthole don't get all blown out. It's a hanging on by a thread. It made a loose thread of pocket lip. So I'll come on down, or you come on down, or Ronnie, or Keyboards. Well, we won't rape you. But if we do, uh, please don't rape us back. To find Ronnie Joe's Bayou Cajun Keyboard Repair, please call his sister Lainey. Ronnie Joe does not currently have a phone number or a fixed address. But Lainey should know where he resides. God, what a fun, uh, definitely real sponsor. That was cool. Uh, Ronnie Joe, seriously. Ronnie, Ronald Joseph Dominique, living proof that you do not have to be a criminal mastermind to be a prolific serial killer. Dude never buried any of the bodies, uh, did not take really uh, many precautions in the majority of his crimes to not leave DNA evidence at crime scenes, didn't seem to care what witnesses, uh, you know, uh, or that witnesses saw him with many of his victims at bars or out on the streets. A lot of his victims, you may have noticed this, uh, were found missing one or both of their shoes. At first, the task force that was assigned to uh, catch the Bayou Strangler thought that that was their serial killer, uh, you know, taking trophies. The shoes were his trophies. Intentional, right? Part of how he relived his kills. Nope, he did not take trophies, actually. Uh, investigators realized after they caught him that he was just too fucking lazy to finish dressing the bodies of the men he'd killed before dragging him uh, into a ditch or tossing them into an open storage unit, etc. In some cases, he would actually start to dress them, maybe get like one shoe back on, and then just kind of be like, ah, fuck it, uh, good enough. Ronnie Joe might be the dumbest, sloppiest, prolific uh, serial killer we have ever covered. Maybe. Carl Denke, not a genius. But maybe smarter than Carl Denke. Maybe not. Uh, reminds me of the Genesee River killer, Arthur Shawcross, in some ways, actually. But even Shawcross, uh, dumb as he was, and as scary, frankly, uh, still able to find people willing to uh, be his friends, to marry him. This guy, though, never could maintain a steady relationship. No friends. Maybe that helped him continue uh, to get away with what he did for as long as he did, actually. I mean, if you think about it, that would give you quite the advantage. You know, no one's really keeping tabs on him. Not like they would if he had, a, you know, a, a much wider social circle. If he had a social circle, no one really noticed when his social patterns changed. Uh, true crime expert and professor of forensic psychology, Catherine Ramsland, wrote in her article, Ronald J. Dominique, Just an Ordinary Joe. While media sources profess apparent surprise that the latest serial killer to hit the headlines seems an unlikely candidate. In fact, the alleged murderer of 23 males in Louisiana is actually fairly typical for several reasons. He blended in. He deflected attention with a deceptive persona and he selected victims who might not be missed. That last part, that I think is the main reason he was able to kill uh, for so long. Had he abducted fathers, husbands from their homes, uh, teen boys from well-to-do suburban families, no way that dude got away with what he did for as long as he did. You know, instead, Ronnie Joe selected victims from vulnerable groups, probably the only people he had access to because he was a part of uh, these vulnerable groups in so many ways. Uh, he picked victims that wouldn't be missed or, you know, wouldn't be reported on as much as other types of victims. Most of the victims were experiencing hardships. Some of them had problems with drug abuse, criminal records. Few were homeless. Interesting that, at, you know, at different points, he was homeless. Uh, he had a criminal record. Um, I don't know that he had, you know, drug abuse issues but definitely lived a very similar lifestyle. He lived a lifestyle more of a serial killer victim than of a serial killer, which I do think is uh, unusual. Because of all this, uh, you know, while area detectives did think there was an active serial killer in South and West, uh, you know, Louisiana, by 1998, they thought that. They still couldn't catch him until 2006. From 2002, or I'm sorry, from 2000 to 2002, also the killer suddenly stopped. Ronnie Joe never said why. Uh, that threw, uh, you know, the, the people looking for a serial killer off a little bit. Then he reappeared primarily in Homa, Louisiana in April of 2005, uh, a task force, you know, 
solid, dedicated task force formed to catch the serial killer. Dedicated law enforcement officers worked unpaid overtime for months to surveil Dominique once they thought he was the guy. Unfortunately, they still couldn't uh, save his final victims. Finally, after DNA matched from two cases, matched enough, Ronnie Joe was arrested. And then uh, after years of, you know, buildup towards apprehending the Bayou Strangler, this hard case to crack suddenly got very easy with no prodding, basically. This, this killer who actually wasn't much of a fighter or a confrontational person in most situations confessed to way more than what investigators expected, all within a few hours. Although he confessed to 23 murders, Ronnie Joe only charged convicted of eight in order to save loads of court costs. And now he will certainly spend the rest of his life in a Louisiana prison, where, as I said earlier, his incredibly weak and wispy butthole has already very likely been put to death. And that's great. Now let's head to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, from 2002 to 2005, Ronald Joseph Dominique had two main locations where he killed his victims. He killed men in his camper in a remote shipyard camper sometimes described as a trailer or uh in his primary residence just yards away from his sister's house uh also sometimes described as camper sometimes described as a trailer uh some uh, somehow his sister and her family never noticed anything was amiss probably because they didn't spend much time with ronnie joe and ronnie joe was able to remove the bodies from uh you know his uh trailers and lazily dump them in other locations number two two of ronnie joe's jobs helped him scout out remote locations to dump bodies uh he worked as a meter reader and a pizza delivery driver Drove all around home of Louisiana's back roads and bayous, so I guess he uh, wasn't the laziest. He often dumped victims in bayous or sugarcane fields, and then they weren't discovered until he was long gone. Number three, Ronald Dominique tended to target thin black men who were walking alone down a street or at a bar. He'd pull up beside him in his vehicle or approach him in person, strike up a conversation. According to Ronnie Joe, he could tell within a few minutes if the man was gay or straight. If the man was gay, he'd ask them to come back to his trailer for sex, pay them for sex. Uh, warn them he would need to tie them up. If he thought they were straight, he would show them a picture of an attractive woman he said was his wife, actually his niece. What the fuck did she think of all that uh, after he was caught? And he would say that uh, she wanted to have sex with a guy like you, but was scared and needed, uh, you know, the guy to be tied up first. Once his victims were tied up and vulnerable, he would rape them, strangle them before they could rape him back. And then he would dump their bodies in different locations across Southern Louisiana. Number four, Ronnie Joe was very consistent in how he killed victims. Almost all of them tied up, then raped, then strangled. Few bludgeoned, one was drowned. And uh, they were casually dumped somewhere and never buried. Number five, new info. Ronnie Jr. not raised by his biological father. Uh, Some genetic sleuths recently were able to figure out that Ronald Joseph Dominique, his last name should actually be Sajak. He is the biological son of Wheel of Fortune host, Pat Sajak. One of Pat's many, many illegitimate children. Not sure if you've seen that pop up on your newsfeed recently, but the 75-year-old longtime game show host, beloved by America, has 33 illegitimate children and counting as I record this. Uh, The only other one of note, country music star and the voice coach, Blake Shelton. All the songs on Blake's 2016 album, If I'm Honest, are in one way or another written about his father, Pat Sajak. Uh, the two, despite Blake's uh, many apparent attempts to uh, reach out and connect, have never spoken. Pat has just not gotten back to his uh, one of his many, many, many illegitimate, illegitimate children. And that is it for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Please, at least one person believe number five. Just, just anyone. 
That was complete nonsense. Uh, I didn't have any new info about Ronnie Joe that was interesting. I already uh, threw it all out in the episode, so I lied about Pat Sajak. I just hope at least one listener turned that episode off after that and is lost in their head right now, wondering who the fuck Sajak's other illegitimate kids are. Maybe they're uh, streaming that Shelton album, trying to figure out how the lyrics relate to Sajak. Uh, I hope that was fun for you in a dark, terrible way. It was, uh, shouldn't have, it shouldn't have been fun for me. In, in moments it was though, just to make fun of the Bayou Strangler, serial killer Ronald Dominique. He has been sucked. What a piece of shit. Also, uh, what a weird story. So many strange details. <laughs> the weird thing about the raping back and he's so fixated on his fragile butthole and so worried about it. Oh, what an odd, what an odd human being. Uh, thank you once again to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, holding down the fort this week while we've had family in town, handling so many behind the scenes business wheelings and dealings so I can focus primarily on content. Uh, thanks, to, excuse me, thanks to Logan Keith. I'm so, I've been sorry. I, I had a snack so many times during this episode, a pause. I started working out just a little bit more and my body's like, all right, we need to fucking quadruple our calories now or you're going to feel like you're going to pass out. And, uh, and that's why I've uh, had a little, uh, little, Burpiness thing. Uh, thanks, Logan Keith, though, for directing and producing today. Suck Ranger Tyler C. for helping with production. Uh, thanks also to Bitelixer for upkeep, upkeep continuously on the Time Suck app. Chris Pockell of Bitelixer got a sweet stash right now. Just uh, saw him recently. Uh, the Art Warlock, Logan Keith, thanks uh, again for uh, creating the merch. And, and I'm so sorry, I, I wrote this out beforehand. Tyler C. Uh, did the producing today. He did it. Uh, Logan Keith's going to help him, so I got to invert that. I thought when I uh, made my notes so I wouldn't forget anybody that it was going to be Logan's in the chair. It was Tyler C. sitting in the chair and he's done a great job. So it's uh, the the work behind the scenes with him continues to, to ramp up. Um, okay, now, don't want to miss anybody. Uh, thanks to Logan again for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com, helping socials along with our suck ranger, Tyler C. Uh, thanks to producer Olivia Lee doing the initial research this week. Great job. Not the easiest of sources. Uh, thanks to uh, the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. The Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth and everyone on the Time Sucks subreddit and the Bad Magic subreddit. So many fantastic sacks doing so much uh, building communities. Uh, and uh, next week, what am I going to talk about now? Next week, the Space Sisters have decreed that we suck on one of the most influential stand-up comics of all time. How could I forget? My favorite stand-up comic of all time. A guy who has influenced me more than anyone else George Carlin. I wanted to say Pat Sajak, but the truth is George Carlin. Uh, the man, the myth, the legendary philosopher disguised loosely as a comic. Even if you've never seen his stand-up, uh, never watched one of his 14 HBO specials or his many TV appearances, including 130 appearances on The Tonight Show, it's likely that your life has been influenced by George Carlin if you are a fan of comedy, free speech, or of speaking one's mind. Hard to believe that not too long ago, just in the 50s, comedians were often arrested for speaking their minds or using foul language. At clubs, comedians uh, could be, often were, arrested for using many of the words we know and love today. Shit, fuck, piss, cunt. Any of this was grounds to be taken in by Johnny Law, charged with violating a state obscenity law. Land of the free, and you can't freely say fuck? Fuck anyone who thinks that's okay. You're a cunt. Uh, George Carlin would fight censorship, most famously with his routine, seven words you can never say on television, paving the way for a new kind of comedy. That was incisive, political, raw, and authentic. Hail motherfucking Nimrod. Uh, long before that, he was a little boy growing up in Morningside Heights, a neighborhood in Manhattan, uh, where he was born in 1937 to parents undergoing a drawn-out, ugly separation that ended up influencing his mother, Mary, to make her sons into, try to make her sons into perfect little boys, uh, try, try to have them not become foul-mouthed dirtbags like she thought their dad was. 
And of course, that didn't work. Uh, George would later credit his dad with giving him a tendency for seeing past all the American bullshit, all the things the media, religion, the state, and other institutions teach you to think is right and just when it often is not right and just. As a young man, George loved taking it, uh, taking to the streets, excuse me, with his, <laughs> I went to Michael McDonald, taking it to the streets, taking it to the streets. No, as a young man, George loved uh, taking to the streets with his uh, gang of friends. What he loved even more was doing impressions of his neighbors, friends, parents, celebrities getting laughs he started dreaming of someday becoming a a, a dj on the radio leveraging that into a nightclub act maybe becoming a movie star but the path wouldn't be so simple he'd have to reinvent himself over and over again keeping his finger on the pulse of what americans found entertaining figuring out a way to make them think and laugh at the same time while also trying to consistently stay true to himself the amazing story of george carlin one of my favorite people of all time next week on time suck and now let's head on over to this week's time sucker updates Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Gonna kick things off with sweet, sweet sack. Adam Hilton. Adam writes, uh, I got hit by the Cummins law at work. I usually keep my phone in silent, but for some reason, my dumbass <laughs> left it on loud one day. Well, I have the Whipple ringtone. Short story long, the COO of the company I work for came into my cube to talk shop. And I can hear in my headphones, the ringtone start. It wasn't only coming through my headphones, though. While he's talking, my actual phone starts screaming, fuck you, fuck your family. (laughs) I finally got the phone to shut the fuck up as if the drink Whipple was the part I was supposed to worry about. I felt myself go red, red as fuck. Thankfully, the CIO has a sense of humor, took it all in stride and just kept going. Thank you, Dan, but fuck you, man. Take care, much love. Keep on sucking, Adam. Uh, Well, I like that story had a good ending. That story had a good ending. Bad ending could have been you, uh, you would have been fired, which would have sucked for you. But kind of funny for me. Kind of funny for me if the Whipple ringtone uh, cost you your job. But I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you still have that ringtone. That's a, that's a gamble. That one is a gamble. Uh, I always forget how many different ringtones we have in the store. Uh, thanks for sending that in. Thanks for sending that in, Adam. Why? Well, my mouth not talk correctly. I should have been Cajun. I think I feel like the Cajun dialect is something I've. I feel like a real backwoods swamp dialect is what my mouth was physically built for. Uh, next message, somebody else got, uh, got a little tricked. Somebody else fell for some shit. Let's talk to, uh, idiot sack, stupid Martin Avila. JK, Martin's great. And Martin writes, you son of a bitch. Fuck, you got me. Hey, Dan and the Mad Magic team, we've listened to, uh, you all for a little less than a year. Caught up on all the episodes. Usually when you go off and try and trick us, I'm pretty good at seeing through your bullshit. However, you totally got me with your Munchausen syndrome causes. Me and one of my coworkers may or may not... That partook in some Colombian boom boom powder at the end of the day. <laughs> ah, our little way to bond and relax. But relax? How are you relaxing with that? So we may or may not have just done some lines of star spangled powder and we're hanging out when I t- <laughs> when I turned on the podcast. Right when your voice came on the speaker, you started talking about the causes of Munchausen syndrome and not being completely in the right state of mind. I felt you were talking directly to me. Right when you said you meet sack. I got a little uncomfortable until you said I need to go ask to have my bare, <laughs> bare bottom spanked. Ah, that's when I snapped out of it and knew you were joking. Any- <laughs> Anyways, thought you would like to know you fucking got me. Keep up the good work. Three to five stars. Hail Nimrod. Martin. Oh my God. <laughs> I wish you would have stuck with it and really started sweating. I'm like, you got to get your bare bottom spanked. You naughty, naughty boy. But I love that you fell forward as long as you did. That is perfect. That did make me very happy. I'm glad you were in that state of mind. 
I'm still cracking up on how you're fucking relaxing and unwinding with boom boom powder. Uh, next up, another marvelous meat sack. Cameron Dorkins. Dorkins, is that your real last name? I think it might be. Sorry for your lot in life. That probably gave you a good sense of humor. Anyway, Cameron writes, good day, suck master, driver of the bus to unknown destinations of random and amazing sucks, full of info and hilarity. First shout out to my coworker, Tim Stevens. For introducing me to this amazing podcast community, I've been listening to all your podcasts, catch up to your current ones. I want to thank you for helping bring a smile to my face in light of hard times I've found myself in over the last nine months. My father, James Dorkins, passed away at 62. Now I feel bad about saying what I said about your name. Uh, December 10th from COVID. It was extremely hard after he passed away since I had spent the last few years prior getting and staying sober, meeting my beautiful daughter after getting uh, released from jail, becoming a welder. Holy shit, you're kicking ass. Uh, doing my damnedest to change my life after spending almost 14 years in drugs and alcohol. Uh, currently 28, almost 29. My father decided to use his VA benefits to buy a house for him, and I had to move into la- uh, and I had to move in last year so I could leave the halfway house after spending two years there. After my father passed away, his best friend from high school, also business partner, uh, chose to continue with the company making beard care products, even though the company hasn't come so far uh, after sec- after six years, seven years in February. He spent a lot of money for advertising and marketing, but there hasn't been much change in anything. I'm not sure if this will be read on the show, but if you could, could you mention Doc Goodbeard? You can find it on Amazon. There's a website, docgoodbeard.com, D-O-C, goodbeard.com. If you can't spell Goodbeard, uh, I don't know if you're going to end up buying any of this stuff anyways. Uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, whether or not I should send you anything, but now I'm sending this to you. I'm not the best at writing. No, you're a great writer. You're better writing than I am at speaking. And somehow I'm able to make a living at this. So there are probably tons of mistakes, but listening (laughs) to your mush mouth makes you feel less less alone. Well, good. Uh, I love you guys. I love to hear all the amazing updates from the rest of the community. Before I keep vomiting out of this email, uh, thank you for at least reading this. And uh, I want everyone to love everyone in your life because you don't know when you may not see them again. Best regards, Cameron Dorkins. Man, you're, you're a good son. Good meat sack, Cameron. I love how you're getting your life on track. I love how much you seem to, to you know, to care about your uh, your father's business. That's fantastic, right? DocGoodBeard.com again. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad you got to got to spend some time. Sounds like with your father there at the end, and uh, yeah, so sorry for your loss uh, there. And uh, hope uh, since that was not a long time ago, but a little ways back now that you are, you know, processing the grief and getting the help you need uh, in a healthy way and, and uh, you know, moving past that as much as one is able to move past with something like that. So thanks again, Cameron, for, for writing it. And you know what? Dorkins is a, yeah, you know, I was, sorry. I was going to try and say <laughs> Dorkins is a great name. It's on par with Cummins. Dorkins and Cummins. What a fucking law firm that would be. <laughs> We both got equally shitty names. All right. Now for something pretty intense. Uh, change, changing up uh, more intense this next one. Uh, I'm going to read this message. Sorry, I didn't put your your name in the beginning. I'm wondering if you are anonymous. I know this is a, a longer one. I do remember what this is about. I, I, you know what? Okay. I'm not putting your last name in this. Jack, we're just going to leave it as Jack. And now I remember why. Just making sure before I go forward here. Uh, hey, Suckmaster, Jack writes, if this uh, gets lost in the ether, I get it. But the last two episodes have coincided with too much for me to not write in. The psychology of liars and what can uh, really be done in hopeless situations with human monsters has been hitting me hard today. Three years ago, I lost the best friend I ever had. 
For backstory, I was an introverted, dorky kid for my entire life, never stepped outside of myself or explored what I wanted, but instead fell into the trap of what was safe and comfortable. I would have stayed there were it not for my best friend coming into my life. She was probably the first person who genuinely wanted me around as a person and encouraged me to seek my own growth. I explored what was in the dinky little town we were in, actually got into stand-up myself, finally started gaining a personality based on what I loved and what I wanted to be. I grew up with nine siblings, same parents. Uh, God was strong in the heart and Lucifina was present in the sack. It's <laughs> a great way of putting it. So as the oldest son, I took care of myself and tried to stay out of the way while looking after others as best I could. And finally, I was being who I never realized I wanted to be. Q two years later, my best friend moves to a new city an hour away, is diagnosed with stage four leukemia. My world broke. This vivacious, fantastic human being was less and less every time I visited to the point that I changed cities and careers to be closer. Well, as she said the thing about stage four cancer uh, is there is no stage five. She died and I was called to her apartment to say goodbye before the paramedics took her body away. Myself, her mom, and all her friends spent the next hour uh, creaming, cleaning her apartment uh, just to have something to do with our grief. Uh, It's worth noting that before she passed, she had a wide variety of illnesses, but none more prevalent than epilepsy. And given she had epilepsy, there was no reason for a woman without a driver's license, let alone a car, to have a half-empty gallon of antifreeze hidden in the back of her closet. Memories came back of her drinking orange juice while friends were over and clutching her abdomen in pain. She said it was stomach ulcers. It took maybe another 30 minutes of talk before we realized that none of us had sat with her through chemo, though she always claimed that one of us did while the others weren't around. Long story short, pathological liar with Munchausen's. Holy shit. My world fell apart. The person who I had cared for the most, who I had loved the most, had been lying to me for years, not just about the cancer, but it made all the other lies come to the surface. How come I never met this person? But didn't you say this person was a dick? Why do you like them now? On and on. The worst part was when that the thought that came to my head when I realized it. It wasn't shock, just that makes sense. A lot has happened in the time um, since these issues, recovery, attempts to be in the lives of others again. And I actually do have a very small number of people I trust and consider family now. But one of them was assaulted last November. She's the most powerful person I've had the privilege of meeting and a fucked up Lyft driver saw a drunk and vulnerable woman and took her back to his place without her knowledge. She fell, hit her head on his garage floor, and rather than take her to the hospital, he spent the next three hours doing unspeakable things to her. This was the third time she'd been assaulted in her life, and she always said that if it happened a third time, she would die. But she didn't. She spent the next several months doing her recon, filing police reports, learning what actually happened. He confessed that it was not consensual to her over text, has been fired from jobs for making several one-on-one customers feel uncomfortable, and continues to pursue jobs where he's alone with vulnerable women. The lawyer he hired to represent him in the trial literally just got sentenced for his own rape last week. How the fuck is that guy still a lawyer? She had months of research, work, preparation to make sure that there wouldn't be a next girl for this monster. And then finally, eight months after this happened, a detective, prosecutor, and victim's advocate finally met with her. They are pursuing no charges. In spite of the confession, the evidence, and there is so much of it, this girl is a Hermione when it comes to research, they didn't want to prosecute. 98% of rape cases do not go to trial. I have six sisters. The rage, disappointment, and disbelief I'm going through is genuinely, I don't have words for it. This man has been escalating. Clear patterns can be seen in yet ambivalence. It made me think of what you said about Gypsy and Dee Dee. She was trapped. No way out. Just more abuse on the way. You're an amazing comedian. I've honestly started my comedy myself, and I have nothing but the utmost respect for what you do, man. I realize you may be the last person to ask, but what do I do? There's a monster in my city. One with a habit of preying on the weak. One who preyed on someone I love and I see the damage in her PTSD constantly. He'll do it again. He knows he can get away with it and that the system will protect him. What's next? 
You're not a politician, unfortunately, or you might actually fund schools in my area, but I want to know genuinely your thoughts. What happens now? I can't pretend like I don't know. There's a rapist prowling my city. I can't pretend like I don't see the scars he's already made. What do I do? Jack. Woo. This is a fucking tough one, man. Cause I've, uh, I have been somewhat in your shoes. I've had a lot of people I've care about be, be victims of sexual assaults. I've never known exactly who the assaulter was. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there was, uh, one person, I won't name who it was, but you know, she knew the name and I did want her to give me the name. And I don't think she did because I think she knew that I, I legitimately was going to try and find that person and fucking kill them. And, and she didn't want me to go to jail for that. And, and it is so tough because the moral part of me <laughs> wants to find this fucker and kill him. But that will put you in prison for years and years and years. And there's going to be, you know, the psychological consequences. Maybe I'm delusional uh, in these instances. I don't think those would bother me with somebody like this. But uh, it's it's so fucking tough. I mean, and and I don't know what to do. I mean, I would I would stay okay if you wanted to stay legal. If you if you know where this person is. I mean, I don't know. There's, I, I don't want to put you in danger, but maybe, you know, it's like uh, just letting this person know that you know who they are and that you know what they did and that you're going to be watching them and others are going to be watching them too. And if they make a mistake like that again, they will go to prison for the rest of their lives. I mean, I want to say something like that, but then this person, what if they can just move on? Tyler, you're running the boards right now. I've, I thought about this before the show and I can't come up with an answer. Do you have any thoughts? Oof. Right. It's so, it's so tough. You, you know, somebody who was sexually assaulted, you know, who the sexual, sexual assaulter is, you know, that they're not going to get in any legal trouble. I mean, I do think, you know, Jackson see counseling and just talk to them and, 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 you know, get their advice as well. But do you have any thoughts? I mean, I think, I think, uh, I always think about this in regards to like the closest people to me. Yeah. And if they were victimized in this way and, uh, I think of my fury immediately. Right. Yep. And then when we are in that conversation, they immediately um, bring my fury down with, if you were in jail, right, right. If you were in prison, like that's more weight on my shoulders. Right. So it's 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 a hard. Um, yeah, like Jack could make it worse for his friend because now she has the guilt. Of knowing that he's in prison. Right. Opposed to, like, if you were going to um, address this person going with a with a group of people. Yeah, yeah. And saying, hey, we know who you are. We, we uh, the authorities know who you are, know what's going on. And, you know, covering your right. bases so that's right. not you one-on-one with this individual in case something was to happen. Um yeah, you know, it's a hard I do. I do sure. like that. I like. I like. I like that a lot. Actually, how you added like a group, go with the group. Maybe you know, film it so the person's less likely also to try something in that moment. Definitely. And then you know you can uh, then go back to your friend and like you know I, I would imagine that uh, she would feel very supported by you taking what I consider to be a noble action in that instance. And that's um, if you, if you don't if you don't have anything else, Tyler, I think that's all I have. Yeah, just make sure make sure it's not in 
like you're not doing something in your pride, I would say too. Like mm. make sure that it's and 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 it's usually mm-hmm. that it's usually support. You're usually there to support your friend, um, but just make sure that like you know in your heart, yeah, it's, it's right. Yeah, that's 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 it, Jack. I think that's I think that's the best we got, man. And uh, go kick ass with some comedy. But get your friend out to a show, make her laugh too, and uh, and also understand that you know, no matter what happens, to this guy, you know, she sounds like a strong person. She can uh, survive now, and I hope she's getting counseling. I hope she's getting therapy uh, that she needs. That's going to be very important. Man, these fucking sex offenders. Blah. Okay, we got we got one last one. We got one last one from uh, another another kick ass sack. They're all kick ass sacks from Pat Dobson. Pat writes, "Dear Suck Master Dan, I'm a 61 year old female." who has been listening for about a year and a half now and Time Suck is hands down the most entertaining and informative podcast ever. Well, thank you. Don't listen to many other podcasts or you might change your opinion. <laughs> but uh, uh, I just finished listening to the D.D. Blanchard Suck and had to write in. Since my college days at uh, WVU, yeah, West Virginia University, go Mountaineers. That's a beautiful campus. I've uh, been by. I have been intrigued and fascinated with Munchausen syndrome, excuse me, and Munchausen's by proxy. It's rare that this topic comes up in casual conversation, but I did have an opportunity to reference the syndrome several years ago at my nephew's college graduation from UMBC. He just received a degree as a paramedic. Congrats. And after the ceremony, it's a very important job. All the graduates and their families were invited to the laboratory. I wanted to say laboratory. Don't know why. To see the equipment at the laboratory the students studied with. Uh, one of the pieces of equipment was a very high-tech simulation mannequin that could sweat, cry, moan, and have a fever, etc. That's fucking creepy and awesome. One of the family members of another student had been dropping large medical words all afternoon in an attempt to impress us with her vast knowledge. Upon seeing the mannequin, she commented loudly, but can you give it Munchausen syndrome? Seizing the opportunity, I promptly replied, no, the best you could do is Munchausen syndrome by proxy. She was clearly shocked that anyone else in the room knew what she was referring to, and my comment shut her down. Yes, yes, because you were correct. Uh, And yes, I gloated a bit after that. Was that wrong? Uh, Some people think so, not me. Uh, anyhow, thanks for another great suck. Better topics, better syndromes, Papa Munchausen's. Nice work. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Thanks, senior sucker. Pat Do- Well, Pat Dodge, you're not a senior sucker yet. You got, a, you got a couple years. Uh, from Highland Lakes, New Jersey, disclaimer. Oh, sorry. Then the disclaimer has... <laughs> that's right. It's your email. I forgot to take that out uh, from your work. It doesn't mention your work. So it's not bad to have the notes. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that little moment of victory. Those little victories. Ah, they can really put a pep in your step, right? For the rest of the day, week, sometimes month. I love it. Uh, thanks to you, Pat. Thanks to all of you for writing in this week's Time Sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast has been signed, sealed, and delivered. More songs were butchered. Please don't rape anyone this week. If you do and they rape you back, don't kill them because you fucking deserve it. Even if your butthole is made out of butterfly wings. Keep on sucking, everyone. Bad Magic Productions. Uh, sometimes when I, when I, well, a lot of times when I do these recordings, I'll find like, um, like a list of synonyms, like the, you know, thesaurus list or a list of slang terms for something to come up with like stuff like chicken skin duffel bag. And uh, on this one, there's so many lists on the internet. I found a list of fragile things because I wanted to find more fragile things that Ronnie Joe's butthole uh, could be made out of. Uh, 
And here's the best ones I found. I just want to share them with you now. Snail shells, tea leaves, fortune cookies, flower petals, clouds, lampshades, potato chips, dandelion puffs is the favorite one I found. I should have put that one early in the stock. I might like that one more than uh, peanut brittle. Peanut brittle butthole, dandelion puff butthole. God, they're both pretty good. Ronnie Joe and his cursed dandelion puff butthole. I hope it is fucking destroyed right now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 